Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com I was born in this four-room house right next to the Union Baptist Church in Plateau, Mobile, Alabama. In this house, my grandmother had taught us a whole lot about this history. But me being a little girl, I didn't know that this history wasn't as important as it is. They wanted us to remember that our family came over on the Clotilda the last slave ship. They made a bet down on the Mobile docks that they could bring this ship unseen and unheard because they knew it was illegal. It was a racist deed that victimized 111 people from Benin and brought them here with the intent of enslaving them. They wanted to make sure nobody's name was connected. So when they burnt that ship, they said no parts of it was left. There's a very powerful descendant community right here in Mobile, Alabama, called Africa Town. Just like our ancestors were rooted. And as we think about how our ancestors here in America, a lot of them live off of the water. They're trying to reclaim a memory and reclaim identity and reclaim culture that was stolen from them. You had individuals transported against their will. 
to this land. And they had a foresighted vision to start a church, a community, in a school. What more can you ask? They started Africa Town with a meek and humble beginning. They wanted to make this their Africa. They wanted everything right here. This community at one time was self-sustaining. Had barbershops, uh, grocery stores, cleaners, everything that you needed. We had fruit trees everywhere. Everybody had chickens and gardens. There was always something cooked at somebody's house and they cooked on wood stoves. Africatown was family. Everyone looked out for each other. It was a place where we had pride. When I start to talk about Africatown, sometimes I get a little emotional because it's nothing like when I grew up. Up until the late 50s, Africatown was its own incorporated area. But uh, Mobile began to court Africatown. And in the 60s, the city rezoned from residential to heavy industry because they wanted to get those taxes from those industries. So I can understand uh, people in the area feeling as if they have been forgotten because they would just like to bulldoze everything in here, move these 2,000 people out, and, and just, just industrialize the rest of it. They figure if they ignore you and just let your house fall down, your, your people die off and buy off your land, then that's what they'll do. came to Africatown, I met the congregation. I found out that just about every family has someone that they knew or, or was uh, infected by cancer. Most of the people who were sick, who had been the ones that was playing in this uh, soot and this ash that was falling from the smokestacks of the uh, industry around. When you look around, it's uh, dilapidated homes. No one has put any dollars to open up a store. That's why the hope is gone. There's been economic tragedies, there's been environmental tragedies to a horrific extent. But there are folks who are holding on. Now, after they're able to go down and find parts of that ship, Maybe now it'll be documented as the last slave ship. 
this mission is, is about, uh, again, doing a comprehensive search of all the vessels that's in the stretch of the river. And if by chance we run across something of interest, that would be great. Six-inch iron spike, and that was on the wood? Okay. Okay. Are you going down or are you going up? Okay. Feels all wood. Okay. Identifying a shipwreck is a difficult business. We look at what the craftsmanship suggests to us. There's one target in particular that stands out. It's roughly the same size as Clotilde. 86 feet long and 23 feet wide, according to its registration documents. Frames of oak, as well as planks of southern yellow pine. Fasteners all made of iron. We haven't seen a single fastener yet made of copper or brass. We've got a ship of the right size in what we think is the right place. At this stage, where we're at, this could be Clotilda. The vessel is located. It's going to be a very powerful artifact to help us tell the story. We think that would be one of the most historic finds in America, not just in Africatown. The whole story becomes life and becomes true. To start a new chapter, you know, from their perspective, it can present many, many opportunities for them. People will get excited about the community, to rebuild it, to give it its prominence. And we'll have the proof that we need to know that we was part of the history of Mobile. We need to tell it. We need to share it. We need to expose it to the world. Alabama is being forced to address its dangerous and deadly prisons. The U.S. Department of Justice put the state on notice to fix unconstitutional conditions or face a federal lawsuit which would not be the first. The deadline for Alabama is this week. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports on the problems and possible solutions. In December, 33-year-old Ryan Rust was found dead in his solitary cell at Alabama's Holman Prison, a belt around his neck. He's my little brother. His sister, Harmony Rust Bodke, keeps his ashes in a gilded red urn in honor of his favorite college football team. This is Ryan. And this one, and that's the crimson color, because he is an Alabama fan. Everything he had was Alabama. Rust Bodke says Ryan Rust was back in prison on a parole violation and found the conditions unbearable, like the time he couldn't get medical treatment for months after an inmate hit him in the head with a metal lock wrapped in a sock. He was stabbed so many times. He was cut with a box blade from his shoulder blade down his back. She says he suffered from PTSD and had been put on suicide watch the month before he died. 
He'd also tried to jump the fence in an attempt to escape. Russ Bodke says he was desperate. I believe strongly that if the guards would have would have done the job that they were paid to do, that he'd still be alive. Horrific conditions are outlined in detail in a Justice Department report that found Alabama routinely violates the constitutional rights of prisoners by failing to protect them from prisoner-on-prisoner attacks and sexual abuse. It cites cases of inmate deaths, rapes, and extortion of the families of prisoners. The findings are no surprise to David Wise, a former warden who worked in the Alabama Department of Corrections from 1983 until 2010. He calls the system barbaric. Most of it's about robbing and stealing, about cell phones and drugs. It's rampant here because you don't have enough staff to control it. He says basic security protocols are not in place, and often it's the guards who traffic in the contraband. Alabama's prison system is in crisis, in part due to chronic overcrowding and severe understaffing. Back in the 1970s, the state's prisons were under federal control because of the same issue. And over the next 40 years, Alabama has been forced by the courts to resolve issues including a lack of mental health and medical care, male guards sexually abusing female inmates, and using hitching posts and chain gangs to control inmates. The state has an, an enormous undertaking, uh, given that it has allowed this crisis to continue for decades now. Charlotte Morrison is a senior attorney with the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, which advocates on behalf of prisoners. She says the state has failed to properly recruit and train staff and condones a violent and punitive approach rather than focusing on rehabilitation. Morrison says the underlying problem is a crisis of leadership. The Justice Department found evidence that officials at the Alabama Department of Corrections are deliberately indifferent to the risk of harm and either unable or unwilling to deal with the issues. I asked Prison Commissioner Jeff Dunn why. Have we not done everything possible that we can do? Uh, Yeah, I'm open to to that criticism. Uh, But are we doing everything that we can right now within our power to make changes and to uh, not repeat those mistakes? Yeah, we're doing that too. Dunn says the Department of Corrections is implementing some federal recommendations and adopting a new strategic plan that focuses on staffing, infrastructure, programming, and culture. We're not trying to hide anything. We are owning the problems that we have. We are recognizing that we have significant resource challenges that affect the speed and intensity with which we can address issues. Sentencing reforms about five years ago have brought down the number of prisoners, but the system is still at 164 percent capacity, with only half the staff it needs. An aggressive recruiting campaign is underway, but more officers alone won't be enough to avoid a lawsuit that could result in the Alabama prison system going back under federal control. When they breathe down your neck, you're going to fix it one way or the other. Republican State Senator Cam Ward chairs the Bipartisan Prison Oversight Committee, which has introduced sweeping legislation that includes sentencing and parole reform, hiring incentives, and spending billions to build new prisons. The problem we have is this. In politics, it's never popular to fund prisons, but it's a necessity. It's a constitutional necessity. But Everyone puts prisons last. So what happens is it builds up year after year after year until these problems are on your plate and you've ignored them for too long. And we did that. We ignored it for too long. So now we're playing a lot of catch up. 
But lawmakers say they're not likely to catch up during this legislative session, despite Wednesday's deadline from the Department of Justice. There's talk of a special session later this summer, but there appears to be no sense of urgency. You need to turn this over to the federal government and let them run the show. You've proven that you cannot run a prison system. That's Alexis, who only wants to use her first name to protect her son, a former inmate who was sexually assaulted. I think that the prison system is now such a corrupt system, and building three more is not the answer. You can't run what you've got. She experienced just how corrupt the system is, paying nearly $9,000 in extortion when guards and inmates would call demanding money for her son's life. Dangerous conditions persist. So far this year, there have been eight homicides and eight suicides inside Alabama's prisons. Attorney Ebony Howard with the Southern Poverty Law Center says little has changed since the Department of Justice released its findings. People in Alabama prisons are still dying. They're still not getting all of the things that the Constitution requires them to have in terms of conditions and medical care and mental health care. All of the atrocities that are laid out in the findings letter are happening literally right now. The question is whether Alabama's plan to improve prison conditions will be enough to avoid federal intervention. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Montgomery. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Uh, is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? true? I can't breathe. Those were some of the last words Eric Garner spoke before his death while being arrested by New York City police. They've sparked national outrage and helped to fuel the Black Lives Matter movement. The police officer at the center of the case is now facing an administrative hearing. As Amna Nawaz reports, the outcome is not expected to call for significant penalties. Judy, that's right. Well, in July of 2014, police detained Eric Garner on suspicion of selling untaxed single cigarettes on the street. During that encounter, Officer Daniel Pantaleo is accused of using an unauthorized chokehold. The moment was captured on cell phone video. Take a look. Eric Garner, who had asthma, died as a result of that encounter. In a column earlier this week, Jim Dwyer of the New York Times reports many in the neighborhood where Garner died believe his death won't lead to real change or lasting consequences with the police. He's been following the ongoing hearing, and he joins me now. Jim Dwyer, welcome to the News Hour. Very briefly, if you can, just lay out for us what is it that both sides are arguing in this hearing? Well, it's an administrative hearing uh, in the police department's own trial room, so they conduct disciplinary hearings there. And, and uh, Officer Pantaleo, who is the arresting officer and uh, sergeant who oversaw him, are charged uh, in Pantaleo's case with using a chokehold uh, recklessly and causing his death, uh, Eric Garner's death, as a result of that. And the sergeant is accused of uh, failing to oversee him. The the defense is saying Eric Garner was a very sick man. He had asthma, hypertension, weighed almost 400 pounds. And the, his death was a result of uh, essentially incidental contact that uh, 
triggered uh, this very ill man's uh, fatal asthma attack. So it's an administrative hearing. It's not a criminal proceeding. What is the most serious consequence that could come for the officer, Officer Pantaleo, as a result of this? Well, it's uh, what the police department can do to him, which is fire him. And, uh, uh, you know, and the penalty, that, I think that's the top penalty. They may also cause him as part of that penalty to forfeit uh, any accumulated vacation or sick time that he has. Or it could go all the way down to a few days suspension or a loss of vacation time. Or if he's not found guilty, he, you know, would go back to work. So there could be no consequence as a result of this. Is that right? Well, if he's not found guilty, sure. So the hearing, we should notice the first time that the public has really been able to hear any key parts or accounts around Mr. Garner's death and the process that followed it. Over the last five days, what new things have we learned from the hearing? A couple things. One is that the city medical examiner found out the uh, injuries on Mr. Garner's neck uh, on the tissue inside of it showed that there had been a chokehold. There was injuries to four layers according to the medical examiner, and they showed some photographs of that. And it was this that triggered Garner's asthma attack that caused his death. That was one thing that came out. Uh, another thing that came out just today was very interesting, that when Mr. Garner was in the ambulance and either dead or very near death, he, uh, the officer's partner took it on himself to write up the arrest form charging Mr. Garner with the felony sale and distribution of untaxed, unlicensed cigarettes. Now, he claimed that Garner had 10,000 cigarettes. In fact, Garner, uh, as the officer admitted today, only had five packs of cigarettes with him. So there was an effort, apparently from this testimony, to dress up the story to make Garner seem to have been doing something more serious than selling a few individual cigarettes. There was also a text message exchange that was revealed in which one of the lower-ranking officers was communicating with a higher supervisor, and that supervisor wrote back to him to say, not a big deal, when referring to uh, Eric Garner potentially dying as a result of that encounter. How did that go over in the hearing? Well, people were shocked, when, it, particularly the Garner family, members and friends who were there, uh, and it was a startling, startling statement. The officer, the lieutenant, uh, through his representatives, his union representatives, said that he was merely trying to comfort his subordinates who were upset about this. Uh, but it, in a way, the lieutenant was actually right. It has not been a big deal. We're five years on. There has been uh, no criminal charges brought against uh, anyone involved in this terrible event. Uh, the, there was a state grand jury in Staten Island. They voted not to charge uh, anyone. The federal grand jury sitting in Brooklyn with uh, civil rights prosecutors from Washington involved, they have not yet released anything. But at this point, it's quite unlikely as the statute of limitations runs out on the fifth anniversary of the crime, which, uh, sorry, of the death, uh, July 17th of this summer. 
Jim, you've been talking to people in that neighborhood five years on now. This one video, this one encounter sparked a national movement. It sparked national attention to uh, an issue that had been long going on uh, in terms of law enforcement and how they can sometimes mistreat people in poor and minority neighborhoods. The Black Lives Matter movement was sparked as a result of this. What do you think the impact will be if there is no consequence as a result of this hearing? I think people were already very upset when it came out that the local grand jury, the state grand jury, wasn't going to charge him. And actually, there were some significant protests in the streets of New York uh, when that happened about two years ago or so. And uh, I, I expect that if the uh, the board here, the, here, the trial board, decides that uh, uh, anyone was guilty or not guilty... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the reaction is going to be almost perhaps a shrug of the shoulders because You're saying this, this is something really people don't expect much of at all. Something will have to follow. The trial has been delayed. It will pick up again soon. But Jim Dwyer of The New York Times will have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Sure thing. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation... Uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. She shoved me to the ground, and like as soon as I was on the ground, all three of them were on me. They pulled out a patch of my hair, and I have a bald patch now. There was a point where she was stomping on my head repetitively. You're lying on the ground, and what are they screaming? They're yelling at me, and she called me a uh, and uh, they drove away. An alleged attack captured on iPhone video just a block from school that has kept Elena Carriero at home, concerned for her safety. When we first moved up here, she was targeted by one individual who then went on to um, bully her incessantly. The mother and daughter moved to Sutton from Toronto six years ago. They say they felt targeted. I noticed a lot of dirty looks coming our way. I can feel the racism here in Sutton. But nothing ever amounted to this. Do you feel that there is a problem with racism at your school? Yes, definitely. This is not the first time there's been an incident allegedly involving students and race-related bullying at Sutton District High School. In fact, even Elena Carriero herself says she's experienced it before. He just put a flag on his truck and started driving around back and forth in the lot with this Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is what put the school in the spotlight before. In 2013, the principal had to ban the image associated with abuse and racism after several students were wearing it. How that then this, one year later, a black student of the same school beaten racial slurs hurled at him. 
Charges were laid. The principal at the time told Global News. Is there a racist culture? I believe there's not. But Elena Carriero, who is home recovering, says she feels differently. They like to treat us not like regular people. Just last week, the director of education for York Region District School Board posted a video message online on this very topic. We know that there are concerns that students in our communities are experiencing anti-black racism. And sadly, we're seeing some of this hate in our schools as well. The board would not say whether this message and plans for an online incident reporting system is a result of what Elena Carriero says happened to her. Three teenage girls have been charged with one count of assault each after the April 4th incident and they will appear in court next month. Now, Karen, you mentioned the school board's instituting a reporting tool for incidents of hate and discrimination. Is there anything specific to this school in Sutton? Nothing. Nothing specific to this school in Sutton. Back in 2014, when a student was attacked, we were told the school was implementing programs to educate students about racism. Elena Carriero's mother says obviously nothing effective was put in place. And now, besides that online reporting system, there will be a new PA day beginning next year to train staff on how to address hate with a focus on anti-black racism. I want to mention I also asked if the school will take action against the three teenagers who've been charged. And I was told that I would be referred back to police for comments on that. Karen Lieberman, thanks for the story. Now, for more on Karen's story, just go to globalnews.ca slash Toronto. Every nigger is a star. Every nigger is a star. Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star? spoke with about a dozen parents as they picked up their kids from school today and they say this elementary is quite diverse which is why they were surprised to hear that a student used hate speech and social media to target a teacher. Catherine Sparrow got an email from her kid's principal last night. A situation involving hate speech by a student within the classroom setting. The Elk Grove mom says her son in sixth grade told her another student etched the N-word into the whiteboard in one of their classrooms. Even, you know, at age 11, um, they start saying things that are inappropriate. Elk Grove Unified School District says the hate speech was directed towards the teacher and someone created an Instagram targeting the instructor as well. We will not tolerate acts of hate, expressions of hate, um, or any kind of hate speech, just like we won't tolerate bullying. Parents and grandparents saddened by the students' actions. They're passing on what they've heard at home. But we still have a long ways to go that there still is hate, you know, in our society. The district spokeswoman could not go into details, but says they took swift action. We are making sure that the teacher and the classroom are getting the support that they need, um, and that also we're working with the student to still meet the student's educational needs by working with the student themselves as well as their family. Parents say there's a lesson here. And we just discussed it and said, yeah, it's not appropriate for him to say that. To talk with their kids about hate speech and social media. It's definitely up to the parents to look at the stuff and check what your kid is doing and say, okay, what you're doing and what your little friends are doing is not appropriate. And this grandmother says the school holds the same responsibility. Help them to learn what's not appropriate, what would make them sad and, you know, what makes people happy and explain to them that these kind of things hurt people's feelings, you know, at a level that the younger kids can understand. The school has a positive behavior program that aims to prevent bullying and hate speech, but the district spokeswoman says one instance of hate is too many. Live in Elk Grove, Marley Martinez, KCR Ray 3 News. I've seen what's around the corner.
I've seen what's over the horizon, and I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. This is a CBC podcast. I'm Rob Norman. I'm Andrew Norton. And the Personal Best Podcast is back for season two. All right. Well, this is exciting. I wasn't ready to do this, but I'm going to give it my all. Whoa! Holy frick! Personal Best Season 2, a self-improvement show for people who don't like self-improvement. Subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hi, I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. This is a podcast from the May 22nd edition of The Current. Ricardo Duchesne teaches sociology at the University of New Brunswick in St. John. While he is not teaching university students, he has written blog posts with headlines such as Only Whites Can Teach Western Civilization. He has written essays that say the West is being occupied by, quote, hordes of Muslims and Africans, end quote. Only out of the coming chaos and violence, he writes, will strong white men rise to resurrect the West. Professor Duchesne has also appeared on a number of far-right podcasts and YouTube channels, including one hosted by the far-right political commentator Faith Goldie, who was banned by Facebook last month for engaging in what Facebook deemed, quote, organized hate. For his critics, Professor Deshane's writings and talks veer past academic freedom into hate speech. After an article by the Huffington Post this weekend called him a white supremacist, UNB says it is investigating. Professor Deshane says the accusations against him are, quote, lies, misquotations, and defamatory claims, end quote. We're going to hear from one of his critics in a moment, but first my next guest says challenging academic freedom is a slippery slope. Mark Mercer is a philosophy professor at St. Mary's University in Halifax. He's the president of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and Mark Mercer is in our Halifax studio. Hello. Hello. Why do you think it's important that Professor Duchesne be able to say the things he says? Well, it's important for the um, uh, the sake of the ethos and the culture of a university. Uh, a, a university culture is one where open and free inquiry and discussion should be valued. Uh, so that people are able to uh, determine what they determine their beliefs and their values according to evidence and argument, and not according to uh, social or psychological pressures. And um, are, are you defending what, what he's saying, or are you defending his right to say it? Uh, I'm defending his right to say it, although I'm not sure about the term right. At any rate, the um, uh, the, the appropriateness of uh, allowing people to uh, to uh, say what they want, inquire what they want, um, uh, as part of a, uh, a, a the university's mission. Uh, well, what's wrong with the word right? Um, I'm a philosopher. I don't think there are such things as rights. I know what legal rights are, but I don't. But uh, okay, uh, we can go with that word. That's fine. Okay, um, I'm defending his right. Okay, and what, what do you see as the danger in prohibiting academics from saying things that many would construe as racist or hate speech? Well, uh, the, uh, the the problem is 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 one of encouraging um, uh, doctrinal conformity, uh, where uh, people are encouraged to uh, believe this or that or value this or that. Um, on um, grounds of fitting in, uh, not wanting to be um, excluded. Uh, whereas um, a university culture is a, um, a culture of open and free inquiry, and uh, we're disputational, uh, uh, we engage in disputation. Um, the uh, goal is to try to understand how things are 
in themselves, um, and we enjoy the process of, um, of, of inquiry. We try to understand things for the sake of understanding them. Uh, but as soon as there are limits on the content, uh, restrictions on the content of our ideas, beliefs, or values, then that uh, um, potentially imposes um, uh, conformity, um, um, prevents people from um, inquiring openly and, and, and freely. Um, that's that's the problem from within the university, um, but also universities perform a social function uh, when they are places of uh, a free and open inquiry and, and, and disputation. Uh, and so can I just mm-hmm, uh, clarify, sure. though, does this, are you talking about uh, academic freedom to teach and research related to one's tenured job, or are you, because isn't, that's part of the issue, too. This is, um, this is not necessarily what this professor is teaching. This is just what he does elsewhere. Well, I, I hope that um, uh, t- typically the, the, the concept of academic freedom does cover what's called extramural speech, um, that is, uh, talking about anything. Uh, uh, it, uh, matters of, uh, of political or social importance for sure, but uh, anything else as well. Uh, I, I think it's important that um, all members of the university community, professors and students included, um, administrators as well, I'd say, um, have that freedom. Even if it's not related to one's own area of study? That's right. Even if it's not related to one's own area of study. So so help me understand that because then if I say something, I can't do that because I'm not an academic. If you say you can because you are? Well, I would hope that you would have something like academic freedom as well. I've written in favor of of a a journalistic uh, analog of academic freedom. I think your uh, your listeners would trust you much better if they knew that you were free to say what you said and you didn't say certain things because you didn't believe them rather than that you were forced not to say them. Okay. Now, some students at the University of New Brunswick complained about Professor Duchesne's association with uh, Faith Goldie in speaking on um, on her platform. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what do you say to those concerns? Well, let them criticize away. Um, we're a, a place of disputation and, and open and free uh, discussion. So uh, uh, criticize um, um, uh, the professor as you will. Um, it's a, a topic of discussion. So is is... Is academic freedom absolute? Well, in the sense that uh, there should be no restrictions on the content of one's ideas, beliefs, or values, or the expressions of them, yeah. Do you believe in the need for um, uh, laws on hate speech and hate crimes? I don't. Well, that's a different matter. Uh, I don't think that uh, the concept of hate should be in the law at all. Um, so I, 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 I oppose that, but um, just in the context of, uh, of universities. If someone believes that someone has engaged in hate speech, that's not the business of the university. That's the business of uh, uh, the, the person who has that view. Take it to the police. Where have you seen the issue of academic freedom and controversial speech come up? Uh, oh, it comes up uh, It comes up all the time. Um, th- th- there are uh, uh, m- many cases. Uh, what do you have in mind? Do you, uh, um, something like the Rebecca Tuval case, for instance, uh, where uh, she, um, she argued that um, if you accept uh, that uh, 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 transgenderism, uh, that, that we, we, we uh, um, openly allow transgenderism, then also on, on, on parity of reasoning, uh, transracialism, uh, people who uh, identify with a race uh, different from that which uh, they're socially assigned or, or whatever. And that came in for uh, uh, um, 
not just sustained criticism, but people were um, um, trying to um, you know have her f- removed from her position. Now that's the, I mean this is the sort of thing that uh, uh, worries me uh, tremendously because uh, you know we should be free all of us to explore ideas as we will. And what do you say to those people who say that um, sometimes exploring I- ideas um, is sort of a an effort to it's you're not only exploring ideas you're trying to manipulate you're trying to um you're trying to use the idea of free expression not to not to give people a vo- who don't have a voice a voice but to, in fact to to take away those voices well if if anyone is uh, if if anyone's uh, voice is being uh, taken away then uh, let's uh, um open venues for uh, uh, for these people to speak um, I'm I'm all in favor of uh, creating um, new areas, new uh, uh, new new venues for expression. I don't think that uh, limiting anyone's expression is a way of opening uh, 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 venues for uh, for expression or, or allowing other people uh, to speak. Um, it, it's it's limiting uh, someone's expression. It's putting ideas beyond the pale. And do you worry at all that sometimes ideas turn into actions that have um, that have consequences? Oh, I worry about this all the time, and certainly the restriction of ideas is going to have consequences. Okay. Mark Mercer, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Mark Mercer is a philosophy professor at St. Mary's University. He's president of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. He's in our Halifax studio. Welcome back to Radio Boston. I'm Jamie Bologna. The Museum of Fine Arts has apologized to a group of students of color from Dorchester who say they were profiled and harassed when they visited the museum last week. WBUR arts reporter Cristela Guerra has been reporting on this story, and she joins us now to tell us more about what happened. Cristela, welcome to Radio Boston. Thanks for having me. So for folks who may not have seen this story, this incident involved middle school students from the Helen Y. Davis Leadership Academy in Dorchester. What do they say happened? So students and their teachers say security guards profiled and followed her class, made up of uh, all students of color from gallery to gallery. Uh, She said guards seemed hypervigilant with her students, um, but kind of lax with uh, other groups of mainly white students. Mm -hmm. And uh, just before they left, um, when they were standing near an entrance, the teacher said that most of her group heard a woman walk by and loudly sort of exclaim, never mind, there's expletive black kids in the way. Um, one other incident was a student who was kind of dancing to pop music inside the MFA's gender-bending fashion exhibition told um, the teacher that she heard someone say, it's a shame that she is not learning and instead stripping. <sighs> wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Um... One other incident was a student who was kind of dancing to pop music inside the MFA's gender-bending fashion exhibition told um, the teacher that she heard someone say, it's a shame that she is not learning and instead stripping. That's some pretty blatant stuff. And and I'd also seen there were some reports that the students were given the museum rules in a very offensive way. Can you explain that? So initially, I think the students thought they heard no food, no drink, no watermelon. Um, it's been disputed um, and unsustain- uh, it's not been proven. Most of this are still allegations. But uh, the, it's someone online said that it was a misunderstanding that what they said was no water bottles. 
Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and yeah, it, so how were the students reacting, though, in the moment? I mean, the teacher said that as they were leaving, there were some people crying, some kids that were really, really angry, and some silent, that they were just in shock. Um, for a lot of these kids, it was their first time at the MFA. And, and um, did the t- kids and teachers report this this mistreatment that day, that very day? So, yes, the teacher said that uh, she went up to museum staff. She she gave them a rundown of everything she witnessed um, and what the kids said they experienced. And she said what she got in return was looks of pity and uh, some tickets offered to come another day. And that's that was it in the moment. But this visit was a week ago. Mm-hmm. And so since then, the incident has gone very public. It's, it's been everywhere. And we're talking about it here today. Um, what's happened since? Yeah, I mean, it went viral. You know, uh, the teacher wrote on Monday... Um, a post on Facebook detailing their treatment. Um, the museum says they contacted the school right afterwards. She says they contacted the school on Monday after her post went up. Uh, a week after, so yesterday, uh, to, to yesterday, hmm. uh, Wednesday. Wednesday, okay. Yeah, the online, uh, the museum posted an open letter online apologizing for, and I quote, the range of challenging and un- unacceptable experiences that made the students feel unwelcome. Kind of a, okay. <laughs> uh, so you spoke with the MFA and we reached out to, to join us here today, but they were unavailable. What are they saying about this incident be, beyond that, that statement? So I spoke to Makiba McCreary, uh, the Patty and Jonathan Kraft Chief of Learning and Community Engagement. Um, she says she contacted the school soon after hearing, about half an hour after hearing about the incident. Um, she said that both the museum and the school want to, to gather data and investigate. Um, they're still in the process. Um, but that that's not really the most important part, that what really matters, she says, is that these kids had a negative experience and that the MFA has to reflect on how it contributed to making these kids feel unwelcome. I would like to argue that it's um, even more so about what happens after that, which is ensuring that they know they belong here when they come into this museum, that they feel like it's their museum. And I approach that from both the perspective of a Boston resident, um, a mother of a young man of color who I want to make sure feels full agency to walk into this museum and um, own it in a, a really powerful way. But of course, in hearing that, it, you know, know that they belong here. Christelle, we've reported on this show and on WBUR, the museum has been having a, a bit of a reckoning over the last few years, acknowledging that it's a largely white institution in a rather diverse city and that there are people who don't feel belong there. Right. So neither the museum's visitors or employee base reflect the city. Um, In 2015, according to the MFA, 79 percent of museum visitors identified as Caucasian. 20 percent of the MFA's 700 plus member staff self-identifies as non-white. And of that group, only 14 percent are in the professional ranks. So like curators, conservators, educators and leadership. So that was 2015. Has the museum taken any steps to deal with that? So in the letter, um, they mentioned that they're working on diversifying its staff uh, so more more visitors can see themselves reflected there. Um, They offer free family memberships for newly naturalized U.S. citizens, uh, and they said they're working on more inclusive, low-cost programming to attract uh, kind of wider audiences. And it costs how much to, to attend the MFA? Um, About twenty twenty dollars, give or just, take. Yeah. yeah, although it's free Wednesday nights. And and there are of course discounted uh, afternoons and evenings. But um, Christelle, I want to ask you because here in Boston, you know, we sometimes like to pat ourselves on the back for our history, and rightfully so. But it's, it's also obviously much more complicated than that. And the lack of inclusion is built into our institutions and goes back to the origins of museums like the MFA. Is that right? 
Yeah. So uh, the 150-year-old MFA has been grappling uh, with the same thing most Western encyclopedic museums are dealing with. Um, This is a history and legacy of structural racism. Um, It's not that museums, particularly encyclopedic ones like the MFA, are broken. It's that they were set up from a very specific perspective. Um, They've historically served as institutional memory uh, of world cultures from a white Western point of view rooted in colonialism. We actually heard a little bit about that in the the top of the show where where we we were at an archaeological dig in Roxbury. um, And Joe Bagley, the city archaeologist, said, you know, people choose to write history and it's written by certain people by a certain from a certain perspective. But the artifacts, perhaps, uh, tell their own story. So I want to ask you, Christella, where does the museum stand right now? Um, There are clearly efforts to be more inclusive. Um, but I think the museum realizes that it has a long way to go. Um, Makiba McCreary, a woman of color herself, told me that she wouldn't have come on to work at the museum five months ago unless she knew that they were truly committed to affecting change. You know, I think it shouldn't be lost on anybody that for me to agree to be here and to sign on to um, supporting this incredible mission, I had to feel like there were this was a culture that was going to be open to my beliefs and my values. And I think that's absolutely the case. I think that there's a full commitment from the director, Matthew Teitelbaum, and the rest of the leadership team to do better, to constantly do better. And it's really um, an iterative process. We learn as we go. Um, and we also have to be accountable when we get it wrong. And um, we, can't, we can't keep getting it wrong. So we'll see if they can make good on that commitment. Yes, we will. That's uh, Cristela Guerra, reporter for The Artery, WBUR's arts and culture beat. Black babies cost less. Stephanie Jones found that her son had died after he was discovered hanging from an electrical tower on April 14th of 2011. She's from South Bend, Indiana, and her son's death was immediately ruled a suicide, even though there is some evidence to indicate that that is not necessarily true. TYT Investigates has looked into this story and found that there are all sorts of questionable things that were done by authorities in South Bend, Indiana. And even though Stephanie Jones asked Pete Buttigieg to please help her, to please look into her son's death, Her requests went ignored, and she feels that no one has any interest in helping her or listening to her story. But now TYT Investigates has uncovered the details of this story, and we're going to share them with you today. Now, first, I want to just quickly note all of the different issues that were discovered in the son's death. First off, the coroner had ruled that it was a suicide on the scene. The issue is that the coroner had absolutely no medical training whatsoever. Okay. Um, Also, there was no forensic examination of the scene or of the body. Uh, There was also the fact that the body was cremated uh, before an autopsy could be done. Uh, There was also the fact that Jones was not allowed to see the scene uh, where her son was found hanging. And Jones was asked to sign a bill for cremation minutes after her son's body, uh, after she had seen her son's body. So she had seen her son's body for the first time. And minutes later, uh, she was asked to uh, sign the bill for cremation. And finally, the classmates of her son allege that 
her son had an issue with a white male in the school who had threatened him, who had used racial slurs against him, and again, had threatened to cause harm to him. So these are all points that you'll see throughout the story, but I wanna give you more of what was going on, contextualize it for you. According to Jeff Harrell, who wrote for TYT Investigates, Stephanie Jones, a black woman in South Bend, sat at her dining room table in front of her son's remains and tearfully wondered why nobody, including Mayor Pete Buttigieg, ever agreed to investigate the death of her 16-year-old son. She believes he was murdered, and she's not alone in thinking that. So when it comes to the coroner, uh, coroner Chuck Hurley certified it as a suicide, listing the time of death as 1.50 p.m., eight minutes after the 911 call. The official cause of death was asphyxiation by hanging, okay? Now, I wanna give you some more details, but Jake, do you wanna jump in before I do that? Yeah, I, I wanna be clear about one thing. Uh, Buttigieg was not mayor when the incident happened. Uh, he became mayor later and then Jones, the mom, asked them for help. And they were at a at a, a meeting together uh, the, where they were discussing uh, town business. It's called the South Bend Common Council. That's the city's legislative body, and uh, that was in the summer of 2012. And they and in the minutes we acquired it at TYT, and they do show that Buttigieg was there. And Jones went up and and talked to him, and he gave her a card, and he said, "Call me, and I'll follow up on this." And she said every time that he called, uh, she called Buttigieg. Uh, she would only get the secretary, she would never be passed on to the mayor, and there was never any return calls. So uh, it's about the aftermath of the investigation. And there is one other connection to Buttigieg that is potentially important. So Chuck Hurley, who was the coroner, even though he has no medical experience in that regard, as Anna told you earlier in the beginning of the story, that's already strange, but I don't know if that happens in small towns across the country. but. It actually does. It's interesting that the story was just, you know, published by TYT Investigates because over the weekend, uh, uh, John Oliver had done a lengthy piece on how coroners in a lot of cities throughout the country uh, do not have medical training and actually are underfunded. Yeah, but the connection to Buttigieg is that the mom is asking Buttigieg to look into Chuck Hurley and how he declared it an immediate suicide, but at the time. Buttigieg had demoted the police chief, who was the first African American police chief of South Bend, Indiana. We covered that story earlier in the Young Turks, and TYT Investigates did some great reporting on it. You can catch, read that at tyt.com. Anyway, he had demoted the black police chief, and he had put in his place as interim police chief, Chuck Hurley. So he would have to open an investigation on his the guy he just named as interim police chief. Could that explain why there was no call back to the mom? Possibly. It's certainly relevant, let's put it that way. Also, I wanna just quickly address an uncomfortable part of the story, which is the the teen's name, Jihad Vasquez. So he's a Christian and his absentee father had named him. So he has nothing to do with Jihad, even though that is his first name. I just wanna get that out of the way. Yeah, well, actually the fact that he's a devout Christian plays into the story later because he carries a Bible with him all the time. and and. Uh, several people, including his friend and family members, said he would never commit suicide. He thought people who committed suicide couldn't get into heaven. Uh, so they were perplexed when uh, they found out, according to the authorities, that he had committed suicide out of the blue. They thought that was very unlike uh, him. Now, again, whether that's true, of course, is very hard to determine now, but it is 
it's tr problematic that they did, they did not do an autopsy. And it's problematic that they didn't look into the fight where he was called a racial slur right before this incident happened. So there were some red flags when it came to the discovery of his body, what was missing when they discovered him. And his mother lists all the different items that were missing from the scene. So she says his school ID was missing, his wallet with $20 in cash and a ring were also missing. Most of that sheet was missing, meaning the sheet that he had taken with him to his friend's house. He was going to his friend's house for a sleepover and he had taken a sheet from his home for the sleepover. When authorities found him, he was hanging with that sheet wrapped around his neck. And apparently only about 20% of the sheet was there. So where was the other 80% of the sheet? The mother wanted to know that. He also had an iPod with Tupac Shakur and stuff on it that was missing. So all these different items that are valuable were missing. So look guys, again, I don't know how small towns operate. And I don't know if the cops are super busy or they just like to be dispensed with this stuff right away. But you, it's definitely shoddy police work to not ask, hey, did, did he get into a confrontation? And one piece of evidence would be, is there anything missing from his backpack, the backpack that they found? If you find out that money's missing, his wallet is missing, his ringing, an iPod, what's the first thing you think of? Any rational person thinks, well, somebody took that stuff. Maybe they took it after they saw that his body was hanging. Maybe they took it well before and then he committed suicide. But is it relevant that somebody might have taken it and then committed an act of violence on him? Of course, of course it is, right. of course it is. And that might lead you to do a more thorough investigation, including an autopsy, instead of cremating him immediately. Yeah, and which I is just, what they did. And I just wanna give some extra information. You mentioned it's a small town. There are 100,000 people in South Bend. It is, by comparison, relatively speaking, a small town. And just to give you some more details about possible red flags that the investigator should have looked into. Jihad's last day at Penn High School had ended with him getting a four day suspension after fighting with a student who took his iPhone. During the fight, his friend Blake says the other student, a white male, threatened retaliation and slurred Jihad verbally with the N-word. Also, Jihad's sister, Charlene, uh, referred to a friend of his who had mentioned specific details about where his body was located before the police discovered the body. The students at Penn High School, Jihad's classmates, knew that Jihad was dead before my mother was notified. They believe that Jihad was put there to make it look like a suicide, but it's not. This is according to a letter, again, that Charlene had written and uh, Stephanie Jones, the mother, read out loud uh, to authorities in uh, South Bend. So I want to caution that I don't want our audience to jump to conclusions either, right? I wish they'd done a better investigation. I wish the mayor at the time had done it, and then Buttigieg had followed up when the mom asked him to. But we don't know if all those the rumors that went around about people knowing about it ahead of time are true or not true. That's why you would want the cops to investigate when you have a a mysterious death out of nowhere in a situation like this. There's one other piece to this mystery. Our reporter actually got to see a photo that has not been released that showed Jihad's body. And the original police report said that he was hanging 10 feet off the air. But in the picture- Off the ground. Off the ground, I should say, I'm sorry. But in the picture, his feet were flat on the ground and his knees bent. Now, there could be a very logical explanation for that. Maybe they lowered him and then took the picture. We don't know for sure, but it does not match what's in the police report. 
it's another thing that certainly was worthy of an investigation. I don't know if they can go back and do the investigation now. Of course, the, the number one problem is that they immediately cremated him. Right, and let me give you some details about that because this is also, a, in my opinion, a very problematic part of the story. So remember, his body was found April 14th, 2011. The death certificate indicating that Jihad was cremated was filed April 15th, the day after he was found. But Indiana state law requires that bodies be held 48 hours before cremation. So Stephanie Jones, the mother, is saying that she felt pressured to sign a bill for cremation. There's also an issue there when it comes to the different places that bodies are sent after they you know, are dead. So there is one funeral home that most people will send their you know, bodies to. And then there's one that specifically the black community in South Bend sends the bodies to. And the reason why they do that is because they just feel safer, they feel like the treatment is fairer there. And so she's very much concerned that everything just moved so quickly and that she was pressured and coerced, she used the word coerced, into signing the bill for cremation at this particular home and that his body was cremated before she even had a chance to you know, think about an autopsy, think about a, a more thorough investigation. Yeah, and, and I wanna be clear there. It's not a matter of, oh, they sent him to the white funeral parlor instead of the black one. Um, no, their, their concern is why did they send him to the one that, does, that African Americans don't normally go to? It could have been an, not even a mistake, somebody might not have known. It's not a big deal in that regard if nothing is amiss. But in this case, the guy who runs that funeral parlor is a guy named Hanley. And Hanley is the one that, that the mom says coerced her into uh, cremating uh, her son immediately. Hanley uh, has uh, 30, was is a retired South Bend police officer who had 32 years of service uh, in the police department, and he has very strong ties to the local police. Now, that might mean nothing, or it might mean that the cops sent the body to a guy that they know and trust, uh, who then you know wanted to hurry the cremation along. But I swear to you that I'm not jumping to conclusions. And again, I'm asking you for the second time not to, because it might have been incredibly normal that somebody checks off, hey, people normally go to Hanley's for a funeral and they send them to Hanley. So, uh, but you can never know any of these things unless you look at it. And with the money stolen and all the other things stolen and the fight right beforehand where he's called a racial slur, it's, it's really unfortunate that no one ever looked into it originally and they seem to have hurried up right. and just said it. And the most common reason normally is laziness. Nah, who, and by the way, disregard. If that was the mayor's son hanging, do you think that they would have wrapped it up in immediately? No. Do you think they would not. not have done an autopsy? Do you think they would have cremated the body in 24 hours? Now you all know the answer to that. But if it's an African American boy, you know, their best case scenario is we didn't really care that much. I just want to note that the reporter for this story was interviewed by John Idarola on the damage report. So please make sure you check that out and check out his show overall. It's a really good show. So the last part of the story is apparently before Jihad died, he said that he was worried that he had no freedom walking on the white man's ground because of how he was treated after the fight. And he apparently told his mom, I'm still a black man with no freedom. Everybody always gets their way, who has a voice for me? And she said, I have a voice for you. And so the fact that she couldn't 
get anyone to pay attention to the case uh, is haunting her to this day. Uh, and she's still trying to be that voice for him. So even if there's no presidential candidate involved here, most of the time when there is injustice done in, in little parts of America that nobody's paying attention to, no, nobody ever gets justice. And so this would still be an incredibly important case if there was no one famous involved. And so I hope that someone eventually gets Jones some degree of justice and follow through that she's looking for. The stars at night are big and bright. Today, friends and family said goodbye to the woman who was shot and killed by a Baytown police officer. Now, Pamela Turner's loved ones and activists from around the country are pushing for a swift investigation into the shooting. Adam Bennett is live outside the Southeast Houston Church where Turner's funeral was held. Adam, what are family and activists hoping for? So, Mia, one local congresswoman thinks that Turner's civil rights were violated under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and she wants the Department of Justice to investigate. Meanwhile, Turner's family, they are furious that the officer who killed Turner is back on the job. Inside the Lily Grove Missionary Baptist Church this morning. Care about the emotions and feelings of others. A celebration of Pamela Turner's life. But my heart is in that casket with Pam. Doubled as a call to action. Houston, we have a problem. After her death. See, Pamela Turner, Mary Tolan, needed a helping hand from the police. What she got was bullets in her body. The 44-year-old was shot and killed by a Baytown police officer last week when he tried to arrest her for outstanding warrants. Authorities say Turner grabbed the officer's taser and used it against him, and that's when he shot her. But Turner's family says her death was unjustified. They released their own autopsy results yesterday that show Turner was shot three times. This mental health awareness month, if you don't know how to deal with people with issues, you ought not give them a badge. After the funeral, Turner's family was upset over news this morning that the officer who killed Turner is back on administrative duty. Pam have a voice, and y'all need to stop using her mental illness as an excuse to justify what this monster done to her. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee called for a federal investigation and faster action back home. The district attorney should take all of the video. Yes. And there should be a grand jury right now. Yes, right. Right now. Right now. Right now. And Baytown Police Lieutenant Steve Doris told me that that three-day administrative leave is the industry standard for police shootings and is not a punishment. Now, he tells me the officer in this case has been back on desk duty and off the streets since Monday. He tells me he does not see that changing right now. There's no plans to change that, though he says depending on what this investigation finds, that could change. Reporting live in Southeast Houston, Adam Bennett, KHU 11 News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 25, 2019. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts suggestions counter-racist suggestions 
the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, number one, I think we had, it was at least Thomas in New York, may have been someone else as well. Uh, who last week inquired uh, about Miss Turner's case in Texas, Houston, Texas area specifically, uh, where she was shot and killed by enforcement officials. I think when that case was mentioned last week, uh, people may have asked or reported whether or not uh, Miss Turner was pregnant. Uh, I don't think that is the case, although I did see reports uh, where that was one of the initial questions. Uh, last week was obviously less information was known, uh, where people were wondering whether or not she uh, was pregnant uh, at the time that she was killed, but it seems that that uh, was not the case, not that that makes it any better. Uh, but that was the uh, final segment that we ended with this week, uh, just an update on where things are. <laughs> Administrative leave uh, for the officer in question, who I've seen reports where the officer in question uh, is listed as so-called Hispanic. Don't know if that means this is a white person or a non-white person. I have not seen photographs of what this person looks like, so, uh, but I did think that was noteworthy. But on administrative leave, not punishment. Certainly we do not punish uh, for killing Negras. Few things uh, to touch on before we get to the callers. The segment on the Clotilda, this is allegedly the last slave ship, uh, and they say that they've discovered some of the remnants in Alabama. I am very curious if folks have been paying attention uh, to that. I know we have uh, listeners uh, in the Alabama area, if people have been listening or following this report, reading any articles about it, I'm sure they've uh, had local reports about it in the Alabama area. I found it fascinating. The audio segment that we heard, that was National Geographic. We normally, uh, for the compensatory call-in, a lot of different news sources. National Geographic is not a common news source uh, for the audio segments, but that's where that report was from. That was the first segment this week. And... I was taken aback. There was a lot of music. It was a very dramatic, uh, like, eight-minute report. Uh, I was taken aback because maybe I'm just not accustomed to listening to news segments on National Geographic. I There were other audio reports on, uh, like, PBS, NPR. Like, this was, you know, pretty mainstream, pretty uh, wide, widely reported spoken about this remnants of the slave ship but the national geographic segment that we heard it had the singing and the music uh, i get suspicious anytime whites start incorporating like negro uh, spirituals uh, into 
whatever they're doing, like, wow, this is interesting. Like I was expecting more. What are the what are the facts? What are the details you found? Maybe, you know, photographs, uh, even though we're just getting the audio video, perhaps, uh, you know, give it to us. <laughs> when was it the contents? How many Negroes were on the on the boat the last time through? And that, you know, it kind of veered away from that quickly and getting to all this information about Africatown and then thinking that it's important that all this existed, which that's fine. But I mean, it was it was a curious way to present that sort of information. Uh, and I am very uh, intrigued to hear if listeners have been following anything about this uh, over the week, uh, or if that maybe that was your first time hearing about it. What are your thoughts? Uh, let's see. Staying in Alabama, when they talked about <clears throat> the excessive number of uh, inmates, I didn't really hear mention of white supremacy racism, which would have to be the case in Alabama, mass incarceration and all that they talk about. Michelle Alexander had an article that I posted uh, today in the New York Times, although it was not talking about mass incarceration and the problem in Alabama or elsewhere. Uh, but uh, within that report, I thought it was also extremely important. Uh, they talked about the sexual abuse uh, of the officers. Uh, they thought it was a male in that segment also who died under suspicious circumstances in greater confinement. They talked about the sexual abuse uh, of inmates, which we've talked about for years. Delectable Negro. It's not just females who are raped in greater confinement by guards, other inmates. We've talked about all of that. That is a designed aspect of imprisonment. That's in the man not get to mention them both together, the man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood, Dr. Curry. Uh, but I also thought it was uh, equally important in that segment, the extortion schemes by the guards, uh, where they are calling individuals who are not in greater confinement and saying, well, we have your relative, your son, your nephew, your niece, whatever it is. Uh, and if you want them to be safe for the next two years or whatever their sentence is, you know, we need such and such amount of dollars. I mean, why? And they said the guards calling. And even if it was the inmates, I would suspect that the guards likely uh, directly, indirectly are participating in this scheme. But they didn't even say that. They just went directly to it and said that the guards were calling and doing organizing these extortion schemes. I mean, whoa. Alabama. Uh, let's see. The segment where they talked about the black students who visited the museum in Boston. I read about that incident a few times. And it was only, or at least the reports that I saw initially, they only mentioned the watermelon that uh, these students came in and they gave them the rules, you know, don't touch anything, no food, no beverages, no watermelon. All right. <laughs> then they proceed with the tour, which, you know, itself would have been tacky, racist. Got it. It wasn't until uh, I found that audio report where they gave more details, because in that segment, they the watermelon incident was like way after they had already, you know, experienced all these other incidents of terrorism. Uh, I particularly uh, thought 
when they said it was a student or maybe several of them, they had their uh, earbuds in and they went to the gender bender exhibit. They mentioned that uh, exhibit by name. I played it back twice. They went to the gender bender exhibit, which I will presume just based by the title uh, and by what I have seen in the system of white supremacy is probably something uh, promoting contempt for gender, that sort of thing along the lines of the LGBTQI, all of that. I could be in error. I haven't been to the exhibit. But it was or reported that at the gender bender exhibit, one of the suspected racist patrons said, it's a shame that they're not here learning and instead just, what was it, being strippers. Delectable Negro, I would think, again, sexualized. How frequently black people just become sexualized. They can't just be young scholars with their earbuds in uh, like half of the folks that I see out in public, white, non-white, period, uh, when I travel about having their earbuds in, could be talking to their parents to make sure that they can get home safely or reporting to their parents about all of the wonderful things that they are learning at the exhibit or calling their parents to let them know, man, these racists, they told us we couldn't bring watermelon into the exhibit. I think they're practicing white supremacy. Couldn't be that. It's nope. Strippers listening to whatever their Negro music is and stripping for singles at the museum at the gender bender exhibit. Let's see. The incident with the teenager who was found hanging in South Bend, Indiana. I thought that was another incident of black male privilege. Isn't that what they say? That uh, black males, they get all the attention uh, for these sort of incidents. I had never heard of that case before. Uh, folks who dial in, if you were familiar with this case prior to, you know, today, prior to the last week or so, if you knew about this incident, you can let us know. But I had never heard about this. And I mean, again, I try and put that in context with cases like Lennon Lacey. Uh, I remember when that incident first was reported, black male in North Carolina found hanging under suspicious circumstances. Should be a cowbell there. Uh, but I remember many people saying that they had not heard of the Lennon Lacey case. And there are many other suspicious hangings that are recent, like within the, la within the last five to 10 years or less than that. And people saying in this age with social media, where things can go viral in a matter of seconds all over the world in this era, black people who look for information pertaining to racism, white supremacy, and said that they didn't know anything about these types of cases. I didn't know anything about Mr. Uh, well, really, this child, uh, Jihad Vasquez, didn't know anything about this incident uh, at all. Very common in the system of racism, white supremacy. Incidentally, when I did hear it, uh, where it happened at, I was thinking, wow, I wonder if this is uh, close to any of the sundown towns that we've been reading about in Indiana, particularly if there was some sort of uh, incident in the high school. Again, white children, because that's been one of the main, in my view, that's one of the most important and most frequently uh, mentioned topics in the book the involvement of white children in the administration of white supremacy and specifically in these sundown towns and keeping Negras out of the town uh, in 
delivering the notices sometimes directly. Uh, it comes from white children, and I mean white five-year-olds, uh, that niggers you are to be out within 24 hours. Uh, or if a nigger is spotted in town, it will be a gang of white children uh, who violently escort the nigger or niggers out of town and then brag about their deed. Uh, that has been one of the most repeatedly cited themes uh, in the text. So if what was reported that there was some sort of racist attack by a white student at school previously before all of this happened, and especially if it involved the phone, and then that was one of the items that was missing. Hmm. Says quite a bit. Could that another incident to reference uh, President Obama and how much white children have changed with regards to white supremacy racism? The segment, uh, we do have, I think, listeners in Indiana, callers in Indiana specifically. Had you heard about that that case? I would be curious. Hopefully you all, if you're in the same state, you'd at least heard about it, maybe even have more detailed information uh, about what's happening with that case. Uh, the segment, there were two segments that were discussing uh, white supremacy in Canada. Uh, one of them was the school segment, uh, a child being attacked called a nigger, victim of violent assault. That was one of those was in Canada. The other uh, report was the talk about do we allow free speech uh, at universities I thought that was important they had a professor of philosophy suspected racist on to speak and rhetoric he didn't use that term but I thought that was so much of what was being presented whites can do can and often give a phenomenal I mean a flawless presentation the importance of words and being deceptive, uh, using rhetoric. Even I thought his use of the term disputation. This is no metaphors, but frequently it would be buckets of words. That's what would be said. But if we weren't going to say buckets of words, they will use many words when fewer words would suffice. They will speak in a manner that is inefficient and doing this deliberately frequently with the intention of causing confusion or inefficient understanding. Be precise. Uh, I think that's done on a regular basis, and I think particularly whites in certain fields, law, philosophy, English, quite a few others, this is standard operating procedure. This is a major tool uh, to be very wordy uh, to the point of being inarticulate, difficult to even articulate what's being said. Uh, and even that being a skill. But I thought there was a lot of that in his presentation in defending why someone should be able to come out and make these racist remarks, white supremacist stances uh, in a university setting. That's what they were talking about specifically. Uh, and to couch it as these environments, ac academies, universities, they are supposed to be about freedom of speech, open exchange of ideas and welcoming to concepts and people that that's what these environments are supposed to be about. That is not true at all. These have been institutions of white supremacy that have fostered concepts like the bell curve, eugenics, various aspects that support racism, white supremacy. There was a report that I almost played today. There's a black uh, female. She just wrote a book about slavery and the whole premise of the book, uh, I'll give out the title before we go off. The uh, whole premise of the book uh, is how 
uh, scientific racism has been a major contributor to the overall dehumanization of black people, slavery, white supremacy, racism as a global enterprise. But that's the theme of the book, how a lot of this has been scientific racism, as they call it, has propped, supported much of these racist acts. The bell curve, I mean, it's lengthy list. Mr. John B. Watson, I think he won the Nobel Prize. He'll come out about once a year, once every other year, and talk about how it's a waste of time and energy to invest in anything on the continent because Negras are beyond help. I mean, look at them. They're Negras. They're going to be uncouth savages forever. That's about what he, and he's a Nobel Prize winner. He comes out and makes these sort of statements on a regular basis. But that's the whole premise uh, of her book. Uh, and I think that's something that's important to uh, be mindful of uh, when whites come out with this sort of rhetoric, they can frequently use words to make any type of argument seem reasonable, even that, yes, we should allow racists to take whatever position they want and have full tenure uh, at the university when that has been the case for decades, centuries uh, under the system of racism, white supremacy. The Rhodes Scholar, what are we even talking about here? We have had racists flourish in the academies for... Anyway, uh, there was a lot more I could have said about that segment, but just trying to get some of the highlights here. Jimmy Bender. The last one, I'll get some of the metaphors that stood out. This broadcast is supposed to be no metaphors. Uh, they said in the report on the museums, it is a metaphor. They say we have a long way to go, uh, and that's regular. People say that uh, all the time with regards to racism, white supremacy. In fact, I think it's in the Word Guide. Mr. Fuller says the longest journey. <laughs> that's what he calls, uh, you know, what we've been doing in terms of dealing with racism, white supremacy, and trying to solve this problem. Uh, but I, in my view, it would be best to not say we have a long way to go. Uh, one, it's not very descriptive. Uh, and I think it suggests that this problem is going to take a long time to solve. Uh, and I think that whole way of thinking is incorrect. Uh, they said it, in fact, they said it in the report. Some of these problems, it's not that it would take a long time, is that people are not willing and able to stop the practice of white supremacy racism. And with white specifically, we can eliminate one of those. It's they don't want to stop practicing racism. That's very, very different. This is something that could be remedied quickly. The report we were talking about from Sundown Towns, the murder of Carol Jenkins, they waited 30 years, I think, from the time she was killed before they reported and uh, told on one of the, the white killers uh, of Carol Jenkins, black female who was murdered uh, in, was it, I believe, was that Indiana? I think that was also in Indiana. Murdered in Indiana in 19... 68, 69, off by a year perhaps, uh, but they waited for a long time. That was one that they could have solved immediately. That's not the way. It was witnesses. It was people who knew, uh, who participated in that crime. That was something it would not have required a long way to go. That's something that could have been solved immediately. That's not the way they proceeded, and that's the way that they function regularly. But I say all that to say we should discontinue saying that. I think it encourages thinking that this problem is going to take 20,000 30,000, 50,000 years to solve, if ever, and there's so many people who think that way, they should not. This problem could be solved 
quickly uh, if whites weren't dedicated to racism and or if enough non-white people got informed about this problem and were seriously acting on getting this here problem solved as soon as possible. Uh, but no metaphors. That one specifically, long way to go. I think we should not uh, we should not use uh, and dress it up. I hear that sometimes as well, uh, trying to dress up something, uh, just an odd metaphor in my view, uh, speak directly uh, to what it is that we're trying to say. Uh, this is the only broadcast where I specifically request that callers not use metaphors. Frequently, racists, whites, uh, they will use analogies, similes, comparisons uh, to practice deception. Uh, often they will insist that two separate concepts are identical when they are not. Uh, this is how you practice deception, white supremacy, racism, victims of white supremacy, myself included. Uh, we have been exposed to this misconduct for many years. And many of us, we are still learning uh, as such. Sometimes we are lacking logic to articulate our views. We'll substitute, use a metaphor, analogy, simile of some sort uh, to try to say what we mean. And often that just promotes more confusion. Uh, if we could be <clears throat> direct, specific, exact with regards to what we are saying, that would be appreciated. I will prompt uh, about the metaphors, uh, just program we are supposed to be mindful about what we are saying. Words are important. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Before we nab our callers, <clears throat> Cow's Yoga Retreat, 10-year anniversary, counter-racist retreat, uh, looking to Lakewood, California. Lakewood, California is where we were looking to be earlier this summer uh, for Labor Day weekend. That would be September 20, excuse me, August 29 to September 1. August 29 is a Thursday. September 1 is that Sunday. Labor Day weekend, four days, three nights, all meals included. It would be all plant-based meals. Uh, same thing uh, that we had when we were in Virginia. No mud uh, this time. Uh, we'll have morning yoga, evening yoga, counter-racist workshops. Should be a private lake to do it up in Southern California, Lake Arrowhead. Uh, again, that is August 29. Thursday, September 1, Sunday, uh, non-refundable deposit of $400 due Sunday, June 9. Final deposit uh, would be due the first week of August. Final deposit is $375 uh, for our Labor Day so-called counter-racist yoga retreat. Uh, you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, if you need more information, are interested and would like to register, uh, looking forward to hanging out, seeing if we have uh, the time, energy, participation to uh, do a little counter racism, do some yoga, enjoy some uh, plant-based meals uh, and do some self-care uh, as we wind down uh, the summer, prepare for the autumn of 2019. 
Untiljustice at gmail.com. Again, if you have questions, would like more details, want to sign up. Uh, again, Counter Racist. This is listener supported Counter Racist Radio. Invest if you think the cows has been constructive. You can hit my blog, racism notes.blogspot.com. Racism notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the listeners who have supported for a decade. I hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. If you're not into PayPal, drop an email and we will get you a physical address for sending any investments. Again, much obliged to all the listeners uh, who have supported. I hope the cows has provided accurate, constructive information about what white supremacy racism is, what it means to be classified as white and things we can do to solve this problem as soon as possible. Star 6-1, the folks who would like to participate, I guess I did give a weather update. I feel like I have bragged uh, on Seattle being the coolest plantation in this part of the world. Uh, That's no problem. It is certainly not perfect and it's certainly still a plantation in the system of white supremacy, but it is supposed to be a so-called uh, holiday weekend, they say, Memorial Day. I think a lot of folks, this is uh, go out and barbecue and grill and go to the beach or go to the pool and get out. It's kind of the uh, beginning of summer for folks and many, uh, many folks in this part of the world. Uh, it is 55 degrees, and I think that's been the high for the day. It's rained most of the day. The sun uh, has just come out briefly, but, you know, it's after 7.30 p.m. here, so the sun is going down and it's still 55 degrees. So that is so-called Memorial Day weekend in the coolest plantation in this part of the world, Seattle, 55 degrees. Uh, folks who dialed in, star 6-1, if you have commentary, again, I am most intrigued by the uh, Clotilda so-called remains that were found in Alabama slave ship. If folks have thoughts around that, especially any of our uh Alabama listeners, uh, feel free. Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Good evening, Gus. Can you hear me? Oh, greetings, uh, Mr. Scotty Reed, founder, Black Talk Radio Network. Greetings to you and the call cows audience. So I'll jump right on the Clotilda. That's all I was calling in about. Uh, this simply... It's just more evidence to confirm the story of black people because I'm sure it's a lot of white people didn't believe them. Um, Kujo Kazula Lewis, uh, that's an important name, and this was documented by the um, important black writer, Zora Neale Hurston, who took this man's uh, story and put it out there about being kidnapped from Africa and brought over on this ship. And the white people, the white men who did this, um, did this just to show other white people it could still be done, even though the quote the slave trade had been uh, abolished, or excuse me, not slave trade, but you know uh, international uh, 
using ships and what have you. So they couldn't do that. But, of course, they kept practicing slavery. So uh, Africa Town, that is in Alabama, is a few miles from Mobile, Alabama. And 32 victims that was on that ship, and it was close. I've seen two different reports, one about 115 and another one as many as 200 victims. So the story went um, um, that um, they did this on a $100,000 bid just to show uh, rich, wealthy white people practicing racism, just did it for fun, basically. Okay, I heard on this show where, you know, we say white people kill for fun. Um, these guys was practicing slavery just for fun, practicing, you might well just call it white supremacy. You know, that pretty much covers it all. Um, but the, the victims founded, um, um, Africa town, which again is a few miles from mobile Alabama. Um, what struck me about that town, cause I was, uh, contacted by a black filmmaker, um, just look up Africa town, USA trailer from Miss Rosalind Williams of Southern Rose Production. This is a black uh, filmmaker. And she had put out a documentary uh, about this and, and tell this story. And from reading her information, she was pretty much saying that they were, quote, unquote, left alone. When we hear about Tulsa and other, other cities, uh, Rosewood, and, you know, just other stories that we don't even know about uh, black people being run out of town. Okay, and so the story goes in Africa town allegedly still exists that, you know, they were left alone to um, do this town. It was 32 victims um, in terms of Alabama and the prison slavery, because it's all connected. Their constitution says that now you can practice it, it. It's like this story has three phases of slavery where it was just everything, anything goes, kidnap a black person. Uh, go to Africa, get a black person, you can enslave them. Then they outlawed the international slave trade, um, is the word that they, or the term that they use. They outlawed that, but you can still practice slavery and breed your victims like cattle, uh, hence chattel, slavery, and breed them, and you still practice slavery. So it was during that period that these white men uh, took a, a ship and went over there and brought up to 200 victims. Those and then just set it on fire. The victims scattered. Many of them ended up in slavery, but these 32 started uh, Africa Town. And the last thing is, uh, in terms of modern day prison slavery, because the Constitution still allows them to practice slavery, but they got to convict you of a crime first. And in Alabama, it is so bad. Um, that shout out to the Free Alabama Movement group of prisoners behind bars organizing for freedom. But it's so bad that even the Department of Justice under Trump is talking about taking over uh, Alabama prisons because of all the killing and other, you know, just uh, antisocial behavior that's going on. But, you know, that's saying something when the racist government of USA Inc. is about to take over your state prison system because it's just so barbaric. And thank you for taking my call. Wow, that is saying something. Uh, much obliged, uh, Mr. Scotty Reed, founder of Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a question, thought that you wanted to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Radiant Emmy. Greetings, beautiful people. 
Um, I wanted to, I was listening in on all of the clips and I had made like some notes and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that was just kind of reoccurring to me in all of the themes, um, one is violence, but two is also how the person presenting the information is constructing the information that they're giving to me. And I just kind of always, I've noticed it continuously participating in the calls. But in the Alabama prison system clip, how the tone was so passive, as if this is just something that just has happened and we let it just get bad and there's nothing that we really can do. And somehow our only solution was to allow guards to rape and support gang situations. And that's how we've been able to maintain some semblance of control in our prison system. And that was the overall tone. It was disgusting. Um, and it really made no sense to a thinking person. Because, and that just for me kind of um, reiterates or emphasizes how little we understand what power really, really is. White people have power to do absolutely anything and everything they want to do at a moment's notice at any time if they just feel like it. And whenever they play this helpless uh, role, it's it's just it's completely disrespectful to our intelligence, but they're able to do it because they're so great at manipulating. So then I got to thinking a little bit more about that. And then I remembered once in English class, like back in high school, we studied like logical fallacies. And I wondered, was this one that I could pinpoint? I know it's something that's really supposed to just help you in your your writing skills to make sure that if you're making an argument that you can make the most effective argument. But also if you're able to use those logical fallacies, you're able to be quite manipulative. And so I did like a quick Google. So this is what I wanna talk about. <laughs> um, so just to define what a fallacy is, it is um, a fallacy is the use of invalid or otherwise faulty reasoning. And then if you did like a quick Google on logical fallacies, I was reading over them because there was a few that I remembered like red hearing or ad hominem or appeal to authority or whatever. But there's one in particular that I think is um, was like a theme for me in the clips and that's emotional appeal. And that was, I can't remember exactly what clip it was. I wish I had started counting, but how many times I heard the word hate and we use the word hate or not people classified as non-white use the word hate to describe what it is that we're experiencing. Those of us who are a little less confused understand that this is not hate whatsoever. This is calculated abuse of power and just world domination, racism, white supremacy. But the use of hate, people who are classified as white, I think have just uh, very strategically implanted hate as what we have taken to, to be the explanation for this. And that that's an emotional appeal. This, I mean, y'all can look it up and I could be totally wrong, but this is what I was thinking. So I'll just read you a quick little blurb. And I just wanted to put that out there in case other people were like, you could feel something as you're listening to it, but you maybe didn't have the word to describe what it was you were feeling. I know it's racism, white supremacy, and we could say that, but if we wanted to be a little bit more nuanced to explain the type of manipulation it is that we might be experiencing, logical fallacies might be a place, it's like a list of them. Um, and white people know all this stuff. Like they're, they, they know all this. They read books on it. They're skilled at this kind of thing. Anyway, emotional appeal. 
It is acceptable to appeal to emotion when trying to persuade. However, it is illogical to base an argument primarily or solely on emotional grounds. Emotional appeals are often used in advertising, especially appeals to sexual desire and the desire to be accepted. However, while they are useful for manipulating people, they are devoid of substance and not worthy of a serious reasoned argument. And I feel like there's enough evidence, in my opinion, to suggest that if we're able to have these types of like mental tools, we can kind um, we can sidestep, we can maneuver, we can see the manipulation and like name it for what it is, um, and and just get through some of this fluff a lot. Or excuse me, get through the manipulative ways of people who are classified as white much quicker. Hopefully that was helpful. Thank you all for listening to me. Logical fallacies, much appreciated, uh, Emmy. Uh, I, yes, I think that is uh, extremely helpful uh, to have. Uh, a detailed way to think about how the deception and particularly the ways that they try to to confuse us with words, very important. Uh, and I think you'll see and experience a lot of that if we're even just reflecting on conversations where, yep, that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, especially the emotional appeals. That's pretty much every time you have a conversation with someone classified as white. Uh, other folks who uh, dialed in if we've not heard from you. Uh, if everyone could take about five minutes, seems like folks have been doing that on their own. Always appreciate it. You can take about five to uh, share your thoughts, observations. That is always grand. Make sure everybody gets uh, at least one chance to share. Other folks with a hand up if we missed you totally, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, greetings, Red in Nevada. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to briefly talk about um, nothing about the clips this week, but um, I was speaking to a relative who still is who still resides in Ohio, and they had told me about a Klan rally that it took place in Dayton, which is about it's still in southeast in the southeastern part of Ohio, and um, it's. It's not that far away from Cincinnati, but uh, I was just kind of reading through some of the articles in the major newspaper in Dayton is the Dayton Daily News and just just noticing how their coverage wasn't that detailed. And it reminded me of basically something that um, from the book study, um, Mr. Lowen, how he had pointed out how white people, at least he didn't, you know, in such blatant terms, plain terms. He, um, he had stated how white people in one specific town, they don't really want to cover um, or report on their possible acts of racism, but other white people in other places will do a better job of reporting it. And that's kind of what I found with this recent, with this recent um, rally. The rally actually took place today. And uh, I was able, when I was Googling it, I saw like articles from the Times and Cincinnati.com from like Cincinnati, and um, they had much better information about the rally. But uh, one of the provisions with the rally, which I thought was interesting, because these groups had uh, they actually came from Indiana. It said it was hosting the Honorable Sacred Knights, uh, which was a another white supremacist group from Indiana 
decided to have a rally there. And one of the provisions was that, that they worked out with the city was they were able to still have um, masks or hoods on and carry firearms, which I thought that that was a, definitely an example of white supremacy. And I was, at least with this incident, I was able to learn a little bit more about possible um, black expulsions from Dayton, which I never knew about. There was one that took place in 1833 when a slave owner from Virginia, he freed his slaves. And apparently in the Virginia law, the, slave, the enslaved people had to get out of Virginia within 90 days or else they could be resold. And so they decided to try to go up to Ohio. And there was a, before they even got to um, a black settlement that was established there um, in that area, there was a, a group of a hundred farmers with pitchforks and guns because they didn't want these enslaved people to go to that part of the county. Because uh, in the article that I read, it says that they would have become a dominant voice in the county, which was which was an unheard of prospect. So uh, basically learned a little bit more about, um, you know, that area. And I'll, I'll meet myself. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, Sundown Towns Book Club. Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I've said we still have quite a ways to go. Well, not quite a ways, but, you know, we have uh, several weeks left in the text, but it has so much information. Uh, Mr. Lowen suspected racist uh, lots of different ways, in my view, that he likely is practicing racism in the text. But there is a lot of detailed information. Uh, you can see if your uh, town or state uh, or places that you are familiar with. Uh, are mentioned in the book. He covers so many uh, areas uh, that it can really be a learning experience. Uh, you can go dig. I've recommended that uh, for years. Learn about your local state history. That can be just a tremendous way to learn about white supremacy racism. Uh, that should be part of all of us, really part of our counter-racist assignment, learn about our uh, the local geographic area that we're in. Uh, also, I did want to make sure I got in as well. Uh, the report about uh, Jihad Vasquez, uh, that's the black teen, South Bend, Indiana, <clears throat> who was uh, allegedly a victim of suicide. In that case, the Young Turks, they said that it was police laziness, most often, that is to blame in cases like this, where you have uh, what they called it shoddy police work and they don't do a proper uh, autopsy, even when there are suspicious elements of the case that would seem to warrant further inquiry, and they don't do it, that's not laziness. Uh, in my view, that is racism, white supremacy, especially when that is uh, a pattern. Uh, that's not a one-time thing when you see that sort of consistency uh, where there's just uh, a, a seeming lack of quality investigation, quality police work, not following uh, policy and procedure with regards to Negras. No, that's not laziness. That is, this is just no humans involved. They got it codified. No humans involved. That was what uh, Norm Stamper said. And the nigger knocker, the violence being codified in the language. Uh, proceeding. Star six number again, uh, 605-313. 
5164. The code 564943pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Hello, Matthew. Uh, greetings, Irie, Louisiana. Salutations, everybody. Um, hi, Gus. And uh, let's see. So um, I watched the documentary you recommended on Carol Jenkins with Mr. Oh, Lohan, I think. That's how you say his name. Um, he actually came across a little bit, um, a little bit proud uh, that he knew so much about these sundown towns. It almost came across like, yes, I have the dirt, you know. Um, I don't really see how he helped a whole lot in the documentary, but, um, you know, I, I, I did watch it and I was like, hmm, he seems like a, it, it, in other words, it seems like he doesn't really have this information to do anything correct or to make an improvement is, I suppose, what I'm trying to get to. Um, I also don't believe, I'm not sure if I believe the couple that let Miss uh, Jenkins in that night when they said that she left on her own. And the reason why I'm not sure I believe it is when they were standing at the spot where she died, um, the wife was very vocal. She was more vocal than her husband. And she said something about, well, she knew what was going to happen um, when she left. And I was like, I don't know. It's like, was that even necessary to say? It, it just seemed like it was coming out of a some place in her mind that was meant to soothe herself. And she was saying it out loud to soothe herself so she wouldn't have some type of conviction or, or guilt about Miss um, Jenkins dying. And also her husband said something about not being able to catch um, the license plate of the car that um, had been following her. I, I just I just don't, really, I don't believe it. I think they may have let her in for a while and then told her, you got to go because you're going to give us, you're going to get us, you know, in trouble. And the trouble came to them eventually anyway, but I'm thinking had she stayed or they allowed her to stay or even if she left on her own, let's say that did happen, um, yeah, they knew it would be way worse. Um, so I don't know what to believe. Um, and like the South Bend incident, not incident, excuse me, lynching, um, the Jenkins family said that the um, police out in, um, I think it's Missouri. I don't think it's Indiana. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I can't remember. So either way, the police in Ms. Jenkins' case allowed people to, the mom said, walk off with her daughter's belongings. And that reminded me of, like, the picnic souvenirs when, okay, we're going to have this lynching and then we're going to take off body parts and sell them as souvenirs. It, it was reminiscent of the same thing. People, oh, let's go look at the dead black girl stuff and I'm going to take this. And, yeah, you heard about that girl that died? Yeah, this is a wallet or something. So um, there's that. Um the other thing is there was a documentary about um, sharecropping in Louisiana where the property owner shares property with, um, uh, you know what, I'll leave my line. I apologize, because uh, somebody is at my doorbell. Um, please pardon me. <laughs> 
Yes, ma'am. Much obliged uh, for sharing uh, the documentary. Uh, it's uh, Keith Beauchamp, uh, who has also been a guest on the cows repeatedly, is in that documentary, The Injustice Files, uh, and it gives more details uh, about the murder of Carol uh, Jenkins and uh, James Lowen is in uh, the documentary, Sundown Towns, uh, or excuse me, The Injustice Files. Uh, and I think it's called the the Martinsville Experiment, I think is the episode, because he has a lot of these different segments. They're like 45 minutes each uh, for The Injustice Files. And I think most of them deal with racism, white supremacy, if you want to check them out, Mr. Beauchamp. Uh, but this one, I posted it on uh, social media. Uh, yesterday. You can check it out. It's like 45 minutes, maybe a little longer. I think it does have some constructive uh, details, and especially if you're listening to or participating in the book club, Sundown Towns should be, you know, required uh, viewing. I think you'll learn a lot and you'll get to see the author. Uh, can I jump back in? I'm back. I got, um, I got it handled. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I apologize, audience and host. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, the the documentary, thank you for that info, um, Gus. Um, but the documentary was Vice on YouTube and the 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 ancestor of the plantation owner, his great great grandson, has a non white male that lives on the property and he he's basically sharecropping his work, his labor for residency. Um, and he proceeded to tell the host who is a a black male that he had books on why slavery was good for black people in America. And he got really adamant and he very stern. At first he was loose and laughing and he got very stern. And as they say, stoic, he's like, it's proof. It's in the books. You read it for yourself, you know? And I was like, wow, you know, it's just, it's like an inbred hatred. And <laughs> to know that this man is still currently in the, in that literal system of slavery is, it was wow. Um, I'm not surprised about Alabama practicing racism like they do in the jail. When my father, I found out after my father's death when he was remarried in Alabama, they made him change his name. They made him change the spelling of his name. And I asked my stepmother, I was like, why? Why, <laughs> what did, it, why did they do this? She said, I don't know. They just told him he had to change the spelling of his name in order to be married in Alabama. And just two other things. Um, of workplace racism thing. I was driving ride share, took a break, put my uh, my bag, I have like a bug out bag that I carry with me. Um, and it was a little bit of jar, my wallet came out, uh, suspected racist, got in the car, was uh, inebriated, went through my wallet, got out of the car, but before he did, um, tipped me my own money. And the reason why I know he found my wallet was because when I was driving, he was asking, what's your name? What's your name? I told him the name that I go by on the app. He said, no, that's not your name. What's your name? I said, well, that's the name. That matters. Are you, is something wrong? You know, I just stayed professional. So when he proceeded to get out the car, he took me the $3 I had in my wallet and then threw my wallet back on the back seat. And then everyone thereafter, all of whom were classified as white, sat around or on my wallet and did not say a word, and I didn't know until I got home and was looking for it in my bug out bag. And uh, thank you everyone for your patience and tolerance with the interruption. I'll mute my line. Yes, ma'am. Doesn't get any better than tacky. Uh, I think oh, workplace racism, Fridays, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. 
that those types of jobs, uh, anything where you are transporting racists because you're in such a, a confined space, uh, and then if it's your vehicle, that's your personal property, and then any of your belongings uh, that are in the vehicle, you obviously are in the vehicle. Uh, that's one that, man, uh, it can present just a wealth of uh, hazards. Uh, really be safe. Uh, you, Irie, anybody else, I know we have other listeners uh, who've worked in that capacity or currently work in that capacity. Uh, be safe and have like an ironclad uh, counter-racist code uh, to keep your items safe, keep yourself safe uh, as much as possible. Uh, wow, that's one that requires a lot of thought. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, if we missed you totally, uh, proceed, uh, star six one. If you don't have a hand up, if you would like to chime in with a question, comment, suggestion. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Draptomania. Greetings, guests, and greetings, callers. Um, I'm glad you had opportunity to find the documentary. Remember, I called uh, during the book reading, the Sundown Town, and um, I was mentioning that uh, uh, Mr. Bashir, and but I didn't know what the name of the episode was with the actual about the uh, or the lady's name. Um, her name is Carol, the one that um, got murdered in, where was it again, Gus, where she got murdered at? I think Indiana. I might be off on the state. Indiana. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you was able to um, find that. I was, um, when I was listening to the show uh, yesterday, um, I said, yeah, he did have an opportunity to um, check out that actual um uh, documentary that I was talking about and that I did not have any um, information on. So I'm glad you were able to find the information and post it on your um, website so other people could have the opportunity to uh, see uh, the documentary. And in regards to the slave ship, I'm wondering... Is there any um, other evidence of any slave ships? Um, and if not, why not? And if they are, why aren't they on display? I mean, um, that's a question I would have uh, for anybody that has any information on, um, you know, uh, slave ships. I mean, because you know, that was supposed to be the mode in which we were bored here. But why, I mean, I don't even think I would have to ask why, because I would suspect that if they don't have any more of them, what did they do to the slave ships that they're not being, um, you know, um, we're not able to um, see them in museums or what did they do uh, with the slave ships? Um, that would be a, one question. And in regards to the 16-year-old um, young man that was killed, I just thought that was really sad. I thought it was sad when he made a statement to his mother um, before he died that there is no justice for a, a, black, a black man or something to that degree. I just thought that was very um, sad and um, very accurate also. Um, and the fact that they um, ended up 
cremating him without his mother's permission. It just it just seemed this um like they're covering up uh, a crime. I just thought that it was just total disregard for this young man's life and they had no respect for him. And the other um uh, thing was uh, um the man that had something about that say about the white uh supreme Traptomani, are you still with us? You said the <clears throat> said you were going to comment about the male who's speaking about white supremacy, and then you lost your audio. Uh, I, am I still being heard? Looks like my audio is still rolling. I'm still being heard. Yes, no. If if I can be heard, yes, I, oh. I can still hear you. Thank you kindly. Thank you kindly. Not we're, <clears throat> we're not hearing you, uh, Draftomania. Not sure if your audio or microphone got disconnected or Wi-Fi issues. If you bumped your mute button, maybe. But we are not hearing you at all, Draftomania. If you want to hang up and dial back in, I'll keep. Uh, I'll look out for you on the switchboard and bring you back in. Uh, while she gets that taken care of, uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've missed you totally, if you have uh, commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Your volume is a little low. If you could speak up, that would be helpful. <clears throat> all right. Um, greetings, uh, Gus, and all the callers on the line. Uh, my name is Sonny. I'm down in San Diego, California. Uh, this is my first time calling in. I work two jobs, so I'm typically uh, either working or preparing to go into work, but I've been listening to the cows for the better part of the past uh, two, maybe three years, and I feel as though it's one of the most constructive uh, moments of my week. So I wanted to take this moment to you know, just call in and participate. Uh, these are my notes that I have on uh, the segments from this week. Uh, Africatown, the tilde is the last slave ship. Uh, I believe a question was just posed, uh, why aren't there more slave ships? Uh, you could look into the research behind this, but it's a larger uh, argument slash conversation. Uh, the majority of slaves that were brought over from uh, Africa actually ended up going to Brazil, uh, not America. Uh, a lot of people that are classified as black now were previously classified as Negroes and colored. Uh, before that, they were what uh, most people classify as Aboriginal or indigenous um, Americans who were later reclassified as black, which would help explain why there's so many black people, but there's seemingly no slave ships. Again, the presumption being uh, every black person in America came from a slave, which we know to not be true. Um, the Alabama prison situation, uh, it is According to the segment, it's often the guards who usher in contraband. Uh, Neely Ford Jr. mentions white supremacists often take both sides of the argument. It is white supremacists, race soldiers, if you will, that arrest, uh, generally speaking, uh, black people. And in this specific scenario, it is those same, uh, quote unquote, correctional officers, police, who are assisting them uh, further committing crimes uh, while they are already uh, in greater confinement. Um, again, according to the segment, uh, it is a crisis of leadership, excuse me, and they are deliberately unwilling. 
Um, the end result, if nothing changes, is the state prison could go back under federal control. Uh, again, that is a byproduct of Joe Biden's 94 crime bill, um, AKA Biden's law. Uh, and again, probably suggests greater confinement is not a place you wanna be. Um, the Eric Garner trial was five years ago. Uh, according to the person arguing this case, uh, they don't believe that much will change. Um, I believe the segment said the coroner ruled his death as a result of incidental contact. Uh, it reminds me of the scene from Rosewood where, uh, you know, after the individual is lynched and they cut him down and you take him to the coroner, they mention, oh, I noticed he cut off his hands, his watch, and other body parts. Ah, well, you know, he just death of the hands unknown, you know, it seems to be that sort of situation. Um, the worst punishment Officer Pantaleo could receive is he could be fired. The best case scenario is nothing happens. He just keeps doing what he does. Uh, it, it was noted that Officer Pantaleo's partner wrote the paperwork um, and not, not the Officer Pantaleo himself. Uh, that was on purpose. Uh, I believe cops protect cops. Um, the blue wall of silence. Again, that is unless you are an individual like Muhammad Noor, in which case, unfortunately, uh, cops cannot help you, even though you yourself are a cop. Um, his partner lied egregiously, said he had 10,000 uh, cigarettes. Turns out it was five packs. Uh, once he was called on that lie in court, he simply admitted, yes, I lied, because again, this is my supremacy, I am white, Nothing bad is going to happen to me, even if I tell a lie. Um, the segment with the children who were targeted by racism, uh, again, nearly for a junior, racism is so universal, even a child can understand it. Um, one child commented, they treat us not like regular people. That is a fair assessment. Uh, also, 11-year-olds hurling slurs uh, towards their teacher. Again, children are not ignorant. White people are not ignorant of racism and white supremacy. Uh, Professor Duchesne, um, University of New Brunswick in Halifax, Canada. Uh, I believe it was Mark Mercer who was actually speaking in this segment on behalf of uh, Professor Duchesne. As you mentioned, I agree. He used buckets and buckets of words. Um, buckets and buckets of words, rather. Uh, one direct quote is, I'm a philosopher, I don't believe in rights, uh, at which point I would challenge, what about the right to say what you want, i.e. the right uh, freedom of speech? I'm sure he feels a certain way about that right. Um, again, I point out the University of New Brunswick uh, in reference to higher learning, Remy the racist, had to get a start from somewhere. Um, the students who were profiled at the art gallery in Boston, um, like I said, one person was quoted saying, it's a shame she's not learning, but instead stripping. Again, that's the gender bender exhibit, so that was probably a child, a male child, uh, for one. For two, uh, once again, sexualizing children uh, is a trend. Um, I'd also like to point out, uh, no food, no drink, no watermelon. Uh, excuse me, I meant water bottle. Um, so again, just blatant racism. Um, yeah, if that's your first time going to an art gallery, why would you want to come back a second time? Uh, I felt it was very tacky that the gallery offered to invite the students back uh, for free. Um, 
again, at best, racism and white supremacy is tacky. Um, the Baytown shooting, uh, very unfortunate. I believe they said she tried to cite a ADA violation. Um, I've listened to workplace racism a few times, and I know that the ADA should be able to help us or help an individual. Um, I know oftentimes it is found lacking. That is unfortunate. I do wish her and her family the best in their attempts to find justice. Um, however, the officer is already back on the job. Again, police officers protect police officers, unless you're a police officer like uh, Mr. Mohammed Noor. Um, thank you for this platform. It's, again, it's, it's, it's very helpful, and I really appreciate you and all your efforts. Um, again, I mentioned I work two jobs. I actually have to get ready to go into that job, which is bouncing at a bar downtown. So my closing statement is I believe there is a certain dolt on this broadcast who says uh, sobriety would be best in the system of white supremacy. Take it from a security guard who's been doing this for the better part of seven years. He is absolutely correct. Um, thank you and thank the listeners for uh, allowing me to share. Much obliged, sir. I think I have heard that, you know, once or twice uh, down through the years. Uh, seems like that might be a theme. We've heard at least two different folks who dialed in this evening who have not had pleasant things to say about that combination. Whites, alcohol, Whew. disaster, imminent. Uh, other folks, <clears throat> other folks who uh, dialed in, uh, if we've missed you totally, proceed. Uh, Thomas in New York. Greetings, sir. Greetings, Thomas. How are you this evening? Right poor. Right poor. As am I, sir. Um, interesting clips. You know, interesting commentary. Everyone, thank you all for your commentary so far. Um, Eric Gardner. Unfortunately, um, I've designated that our people are civilians, you know, the only rights we're going to get are civil. His family was paid a few million dollars, and that's about all they're going to get. Uh, if the officer gets fired, I'm sure he'll get a fancy job as a security guard. I might make more money doing corporate security like Perrick did um, and other racists who get fired. So it might even be an upgrade for him. Um, but either way, um, but the point is, is that, you know, he, he saw him choke the, the guy to death, and um, he's still been walking around uh, freely. No one has done anything to him, so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's just going to be what it always is. Um, no justice for us um, get paid. You know, we all know that the money has value that to change at any time. Um, school racism, um, it's been a lot. Man, ever since I really started looking at it, every year it seems like it just keeps increasing. Um, the lady who was speaking, it was like a teacher or a principal who was um, giving an interview, and she said, um, anti-black racism, our children, our students have been experiencing anti-black racism. So to me, that left um, the opportunity for them to call another type of racism anti-white racism. And we know that doesn't exist. So I thought that that was a very, very clever choice of words she used. 
um, the professor um, who doesn't believe that, who only believes that white should teach Western civilization. Um, um, I'm going to have to ponder on that. I, I think he has some valid points. Um, the guy who was speaking, though, I liked his views. I think that um, there's too much political correctness. Um, and to me, white political correctness is equivalent to white deception and white confusion. You know, I'd rather them not be so politically correct. So I do like that. Um, um, no food, no drink, no watermelon, you know. <laughs> you know, I guess it was like, you know, who knows what they're going to be drinking. They might come up in here with some Hennessy, spitting watermelon seeds, have chicks stripping, people throwing... um. Harriet Tubman bills at them, but I'm glad that they didn't go through with that because that would have been a visual um, we'll be seeing all over the news, black women having Harriet Tubman thrown at them. Either way, racism in Boston shouldn't come as a shock. Uh, Christmas addicts, um, I mean, it, it goes all the way back to there. Um, now, in schools especially, then they spare a black man with an American flag for because um, they were integrating the schools, or school busing or something, um, school trips in Boston, um, Marky Mark throwing bricks at second graders um, on their school trip. I, um, I remember that. Um, so anything to do with racism in schools or sports in Boston shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, the cremation of the guy called Jihad, an uh, interesting name. Uh, I think that they've learned from Kendrick Johnson you know, let's get rid of the body. Uh, don't want no autopsies, um, no dig-ups, re-digs. Um, now I'm glad the victim who was murdered by the police officer was not pregnant, especially since, um, you know, um, you know, white people are so um, adamant about being an abortion. We hate to see something happen to a baby. Um, but... Um, I saw this when I worked at the hospital. Mental illness, it's like drug abuse. Um, it's being used against black people. White people with mental illness, they get treated like they are sick. Black people get treated like they're crazy and therefore they get treated like criminals. Um, same thing with addiction. They treat Black people are treated like criminals. White people are treated like they have an illness. Um, so um, the irony that a week after the the, the mainstream media reported that white people are at a low all-time low birth rate, um, declining in some areas. Um, you still thought to see all this um, banning of abortions in um, very conservative states. It didn't surprise me. Uh, one thing I read in the paper this week was um, Governor Northam, um, medical, medical school, uh, able to determine the identity of the individuals in the racist photo. But didn't he admit to it? He admitted to being dressed like Michael Jackson in blackface. So I don't even understand why um, they would even come out and make a statement like that. And um, where are the um, Democratic candidates? Um, none of them, it's over 20 now, none of them have announced this. Um, the Attorney General, also a Democrat, dressed up like Curtis Blow, admitted, you know, and um, that's all I got to say for now, guys. Um, M. DC did call me from Africa, and he's on my line. He couldn't call the other, get in the other way. So um, if he wanted to say anything. Well, maybe not. <laughs> no. You there? Yes. Hello? Yes. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, Iman DC. Uh, greetings. Yes, sir. Um, so I'm in Ghana, um, but I wanted to call in. I had a few questions. Uh, one question is in regards to genealogy. Are there any black genealogists that are currently working um, to help people find their ancestors or, you know, the names of, of the people who came before them, bloodline? I wanted to ask that. I've looked up a whole lot of information. I've, I couldn't find anybody currently working. I found a bunch of names, contacted them, but uh, it looks like they're not working. Their websites aren't working and stuff like that. The other thing um, was in regards to being able to call in uh, from Africa. I don't know if uh, you have WhatsApp or if, um, or if that particular um, platform is, is even compatible with this call-in, but that would help uh, you know, people in this part of the world be able to uh, call in and participate for um, a very cheap rate. Uh, currently, it's rather expensive calling in the way that I'm calling you. Um, and even uh, going online and, and trying to listen to the show and call in, and that was very difficult. I'm, I'm not understanding how to do that. So then I can't explain how, you know, somebody could listen uh, to a show from outside of the country. And in regards to racism uh, in this part of the world, I mean, obviously it's everywhere. Um, but uh, just uh, there's a lot of open sewage smells or, or just open sewage period. Um, a lot of things are undeveloped. A lot of people are working for just a few cities, which is much less than a dollar um, a, a day. So one U.S. dollar is five Ghana CDs, um, which is their currency. It's actually like five cents something. Um, when I was getting my when I was getting my visa, because um, I had to get my visa right before I came um, or renew it. And so when I went to the visa office, there was a few black people and, you know, they're black Americans, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, um, just a few Ghanaians too, but a few black people, um, black Americans trying to get their passport and, you know, they're just coming to stay for two weeks and then go and they're, uh, like a supervised tour type thing. And then the Ghanaians, you know, they're just renewing their, their, uh, their passports. But then the white people, the Chinese, and I think it might have been some type of Arab, but um, they're come, they, come, they came to the place and picked up, um, one picked up 14 visas. Like you can go in and, and bring the, if you bring in the card that corresponds to the visas, you can pick up a visa for another individual. And so the black people were just picking up a visa for themselves, and they're frightened. You know, the black Americans, they're frightened. They don't even understand how the process works, hope they can, hope they can make it to Africa. White people, super-duper confident. I mean, you know, coming picking up 14 visas. One guy picked up uh, uh, 34 visas and, and was supposed to pick up another uh, over 10 visas. He was able to pick up the 34 that day, had to come back. Some Chinese... Um, came and picked up over 10 visas. Um, another Chinese female came and tried to pick up a visa for um, a Chinese male and uh, decided that they just wouldn't obey the protocol. 
but um you know and, and just making a um being disrespectful um um using their telephone in the in the building when this lady when she wasn't supposed to be um talking um disrespectfully to whoever she was on the phone with about the Ghanaians who were um in the embassy you know and it was um interesting so anyway now here in Ghana um I'm in a village currently, but I've been traveling. Um, it's hard to explain to the black people here that in America, there's still white supremacy. And even explaining what that is, people, once again, I've mentioned it before, people don't believe me. And it's, I don't, it's very difficult to explain it when even I'm, I'm heavier now over here. I've gained weight in Africa as opposed to gaining weight in America, you know? So it's just, they think that, I don't know. They, I don't know exactly what they think, but they, they call us white people, black Americans. So it's like, how do we even explain what's going on in a, in a reasonable time frame? you know, like, so anyway, I think it would be very productive to have this show readily available for the Africans, um, and whatever, uh, whatever way you could do that. I think that would be very helpful. Oh, last thing I wanted to say is to all Africans that are listening, white supremacy is the force of Africa. White supremacy controls Africa. White people control Africa. Your problems are because of white people, the sewage, white people's the problem. The money, white people is the problem. And the the murders that um that happen in certain countries, you know, tribal um warfare, whatever you want to call it, white people. That's the problem. And white people are ice albinos. They're they're a group of albinos. They're not black Americans. Okay, thank you. Much obliged, M. Hundisi, uh, joining us live from the continent. I have heard that reported uh, previously from uh, Black people born in this part of the world when they visit the continent. Uh, I couldn't tell you specific uh, so-called country if you, you know, asked me to do it immediately. Uh, but I have heard that them being them getting there and saying that uh, Black people there called them white people. Um, part of the confusion of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I do think that's a great suggestion uh, to have. Uh, information readily available, bam, uh, you can just give folks the website or address where they can go and get the content to listen to the program, see if it's constructive to help them get a better understanding of the problem we are all facing worldwide, why they have those sewage issues and all the rest, why we're having the same problems that we're dealing with here, water issues in Flint, can't even go to the museum or the library without being harassed, same problem. Uh, other folks who we have missed totally. Thank you for the assist, Thomas in New York. Other folks that we missed uh, totally, if you have a hand up commentary to share, proceed. Oh, watch that word fair. Did hear that one. Watch the word fair. Uh, if we had other folks uh, who have commentary to share, proceed. Gus, can I uh, answer the question real, real quick before I um, forget about the genealogy? Yes. Um, so, ironically, um, the documentary I mentioned about um, sharecropping was featuring a black uh, female genealogist in Kentwood, Louisiana. 
her name is uh, Antoinette Harrell, uh, that's Hotel Alpha Romeo Romeo Echo Lima Lima. So I would look her up, and uh, I mean, the documentary was done, I think, in 2015, not too long ago, but a while. So hopefully she's still um, in good mind and, and shape. Um, she is a sick individual, um, but um, I, I'm hoping she's still around and would be someone to uh, turn to. She has found some people as far back as, like, uh, early 1800s for some uh, families in Louisiana. I forgot about much obliged, Ari. Thank you kindly. Uh, I'd totally forgotten. And then when you came back to answer, I was thinking, oh, Miss Harrell, she's been a guest on the program twice, in fact, uh, 2016. Absolutely. When she visited with us, she sounded uh, as well as a victim of white supremacy can sound. Antoinette Harrell. Yes, she does great work. Uh, other folks, if we missed you totally, if you have uh, commentary to share, I'll give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, greetings, Ivy. Greetings to us and greetings to all the caller, callers on the line. Um, I wanted to say that um, ever since becoming vegan about two and a half months ago, my eyesight has improved by over half, by over 50%. Um, and there's notice, noticeable improvement. Um, a little bit every day, but for sure, Every four days, um, my skin um, looks much better. I didn't have acne or anything like that. Um, my, my skin was, I guess you could say, relatively clear, but it's um, even better um, since then. And also, um, it's very easy to get cardiovascular exercise because you're cooking all the time, or at least that's, <laughs> that's my experience. Um, it's been stated on this program, you know, people, they, they struggle to, to give up cheese. Um, there are, uh, ways that you can make your own cheese. You can make it with Brazilian nuts. You can make it with, um, sesame seeds. I mean, you could just go on YouTube and, you know, search for, you know, like homemade, like, um, vegan cheeses. Um, so, I mean, people make them out of a lot of different things. Um, I heard a, a, a metaphor today a few of them actually that i had never heard before and um they were just they were very unfortunate and they were actually by another uh black person she's a chef and um she said that a particular flavor of a spice or something like that had a bright flavor she said it was a bright spice and she said about something else that she was cooking or something that that the bite of it is just a a burst of sunshine and I'm just tripping off, or I'm just, um, I guess you could say, um, I guess disappointed, I guess, with the 
conflation of brightness to a flavor, to a spice, to food. I mean, it doesn't have any, one doesn't have anything to do with the other. I mean, just the, this language and the way that white people have have trained us to talk and to associate everything um, with light um, and with colors, because um, that's how they they um, they practice racism. Um, I wanted to say that, uh, I, or I wanted to ask, I guess, especially for the women on the line, um, what, I mean, do they, because I think it was, I think it was um, mentioned, well, actually, before I asked that question, I, I just remembered what this means, this note that I took, which is this. Uh, Gus, you mentioned that um, some cops said something about it was laziness, or somebody said it was laziness uh, when a cop doesn't, or when investigators, when they don't solve um, cases involving black people. The interesting thing is that over 90% of cop murders, where when, when cops get murdered, are solved. So all of this, you know, we can't solve cases because black people don't want to snitch or they don't want to tell or we can't solve cases for whatever excuses that they make up. They solve cases that they want to solve. So when you see Chicago having... I don't know, 30% of their cases um, not being solved, it's because either it's not happening the way that they're saying or white people are killing us or, you know, whether they have badges or not, they're, they're not solving them because they don't want to solve them. Um, and they, they solve cases that they, they want to solve. Um, and so th- I'm, I'm going to say this, and um, this is the last thing, which is that um, – as I said, especially for the the women on the line, what, if any, natural, I guess, pain medications do they take or, or ways do they have to, to relieve pain, specifically for menstrual cramps and menstrual headaches? I believe it was said that when you, when you all went to the retreat that someone tried to take ibuprofen and they were, for lack of words, denied and altered offered an alternative, a natural alternative, because you all were not um, about, you, you all were not um, allowing um, chemicals and, you know, things of that nature because you, you were being uh, natural about the way, you were being natural about the way that you were going about managing pain and anything else. And that's what I want to do. Um, I want to, and, and my, of course, my, my long-term, I guess, remedy for, you know, certain ailments is to just continue to do what I'm doing because the um, improvements over just two and a half months is absolutely incredible. I never thought that any of my sight could ever be restored through changing my diet. That is just, I don't even have words for that. But um, the last thing I just wanted to ask is, you know, just do, 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 does anyone have any natural um, remedies for menstrual cramps, menstrual headaches, and even um, acid reflux, and I just hope that everyone enjoys their weekend as best as they can, and I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Much obliged. Always, uh, it is, I'll use the word from last year, inspiring and appreciated uh, the folks who have changed their diet and or incorporated a little bit of yoga, I've heard from a number of folks who said that they've tried out being vegan and I think black Africans saying that he lost 35 pounds and uh, 
to Ivy saying that her eyesight is substantially better uh, and thinks diet may have something to do with that. Great to hear the experiences. Uh, what we eat is powerful, uh, whether it's powerful in destroying our health with Cheetos and all the rest of it, high fructose corn syrup, sodas, all of that. Or we could be eating healthy foods. Brussels sprouts had some of those this week. Sweet potatoes. I uh, played that segment last week, getting away from those processed foods, drinking more water. That was said yesterday, leaving those sodas alone. Squash, kale. I had kale yesterday. Uh, eating more fresh fruits, vegetables, doing as best we can to take care of ourselves under really toxic conditions. Uh, if we have uh, folks, if they have, if uh, any folks here have suggestions about natural uh, ways to uh, manage pain with regards to uh, menstrual, uh, menstrual cramps, your menstrual cycle, uh, please share. Uh, that would be a great one to nab in. Uh, give out the number again at 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That's going to be her. Mm -hmm. I'll wait. All right. On. Oh, uh, thank you, Emmy. Draftomania, proceed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I, my phone got cut off. Uh, I'm on the rope line, and I think after two hours, it just cuts off. So I do apologize. I, I'm not sure where I left off at, but I do have a suggestion for uh, Ivy in regards to um, menstrual cramp pain. Um, because I'm a vegan also, I actually just had an anniversary on the fourth of uh, three years of this month. So um, um, for um, menstrual cramps, I would suggest um, wild lettuce. And I actually got that from uh, Roz. Um, from listening to your show, um, I ended up ordering some uh, on um, Amazon. I was able to get some from Amazon. And in regards to the acid reflux, uh, ginger root. Ginger root really um, works good for um, uh, acid reflux and things like that. And um, baking soda, warm water, and warm water is usually a good remedy also for that. Um, and you, she might want to add a little bit of um, uh, apple cider uh, vinegar uh, to the water. Uh, so it would be baking soda, apple, apple cider, um, and warm water. And that should help her out. And um, that's all I have. Thank you. Much obliged. Thanks for your patience, Emmy. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I know it's going to sound maybe counterintuitive, but for the menstrual cramps um, and any pain that's not joint related, um, exercise. Um, especially, I know it doesn't seem like that's like, why would I do that if I'm in pain? Over like five minutes into it, the pain will like you won't actually be in pain. And depending on the intensity of your workout, you can force your body to release those endorphins and those endocannabinoids, which are going to actually just make you feel really good uh, and help to alleviate the pain. So 
by by exercising, you force your body to release the chemicals that are the anti-pain chemicals that some of the drugs that that drugs are modeled after. Um, so I'm a huge fan. Like I know, you know, mine come in, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and I'm like, nope, I'm about to hit the gym, I'm about to work it out, sweat it out. We're gonna get through this. Ten minutes in, I'm good to go, and then it'll carry me throughout the day. Um, and then, but if you know, you're like, look, no, that's just not gonna work. The heating pad or any kind of heated thing, like I have a heating pad, but there's also the ones that you like stick in the microwave. I know they have different types. So I'm a huge fan of the heating pad for the menstrual cramps. I'm a huge fan for uh, self-massaging. And so just, you know, fill around and like massage, that actually can help. Um, stretching can help too. Because sometimes it's like, I feel like that part of the body just needs to be moved. It's just like, it's going through things. You're pretty much having contractions. But if you can just work with your body and breathe through it, it kind of seems to help. It helps me. Um, and being hot, like, so if maybe if you have a gym that, like, has a sauna, but you don't feel like working out, just being in the sauna helps you. Like, just be hot and sweat. It helps. And then, you know, helps to lower your blood pressure and help you relax and stuff like that. Something I've noticed, but I haven't really been able to experiment uh, with enough to sit here and say for sure, for sure. So if you do, let me know. But I pretty much like cut salt. If it don't have it naturally, I'm not adding it. No seasonings, nothing. Uh, I have my reasons, but the effect of it was so great. And so when you were talking about your eyes, that was something I noticed just by cutting sodium or added sodium. Because when you have a lot of salt, your body holds the water, your body holds the water, increases the blood volume, increases the pressure. And now you have all this pain on your joints or just extra pain or extra pressure in the eyes and extra pressure in the eyes, extra pressure on the muscles so you can't see as well. So just by cutting the salt, you can do some stuff like just alleviate internal pressure. I don't know what it'll do for the menses, but maybe it'll be helpful. For the acid reflux, that pretty much means you just got too much acid, but your stomach releases the acid when it thinks it's going to get food. So sometimes people have acid reflux and it's because they're not eating on time. So I, I don't know if you are or aren't, but consistent, regular eating, it's like like having a time that you eat throughout the day. Not like, oh, I think I might be hungry, but then you wait, or you smell food or see food, or your brain has like starts saying, hey, it's time for food. So your stomach releases the acid, now you got all this acid, and it's just like there's no food for it to like break down. So I don't know any um, foods that you could eat to help with the acid reflux. Um, but I do know that that's like a big thing, the consistent eating on a timed basis and get your body into the habit of that. Hopefully it was helpful. Thanks. Much Hello, may I be heard? Appreciate oh, that. Not, uh, no apologies needed. Thank you, Emmy. Uh, proceed, Irie, Louisiana. Um, thank you, everybody, for the info. Um, that was one of the things I was going to mention is exercise. I found out about exercise and menstrual cramps when I was in high school, and I would uh, break out in jumping jacks. <laughs> Sometimes I'd get up, go to the bathroom, and do jumping jacks when I had cramps. And after about 20 of them, the cramps would subside because it's about blood flow and uh, increasing it. Uh, something else that I take uh, by capsule is chase berry, which is uh, good for uh, not just uh, your menstrual like flow, but also thigh, uh, regulating your thyroid, um, that's chase berry. Um, vitamin E, along with selenium, would also help with blood flow. Um, so hopefully you're not anemic, because vitamin E is a natural blood thinner, 
So it's part of your problem is coagulation of blood, which ultimately results in cramps. You could do those things in combination to thin out your blood a little bit more so you can uh, have a little bit better of a flow. Um, And then uh, as far as acid, it could be what Emmy was saying, you're not eating when your body is uh, in demand for that energy. But also, um, Mm. I think mainly water, water increase. um, Because the book I mentioned before, You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty, Dr. Bohemian, I I can't remember, Bahamidi, something like that. He mentioned when he was treating an individual that was in jail that had ulcers, severe ulcers, and he uh, upped his water intake by like 30% more, the ulcers over a period of months healed and dissipated completely because that acid, you know, you have to counteract it with water and get your body back at a better pH along with maybe even checking out the foods um, that are causing you to build more acid because it could be being vegan alone is not enough to uh, regulate that, that sort of activity in your body. You could be eating a vegetable that your body necessarily, well, doesn't necessarily agree with, per se. Maybe you don't need broccoli or maybe it's Brussels broccoli. Trying to isolate different foods to see what happens in your stomach afterward and making a diary of it along with upping the water should alleviate the acid reflux as well. Thank you. I mean, my Drinking more water, that's been mentioned a few times. Uh, I think Dr. Lathan, she mentioned that book when she was on the program, Water for Health, for Healing, for Life. You're not sick, you're thirsty. Long title, but the book title is actually just Water. Anywho. uh, Can I be heard? uh, Yes, sir. I do want to make sure I get in really quick. My prenatal yoga instructor, she did mention although she was not trying to convince us to be vegan because she's not vegan, but she did mention uh, during your menstrual cycle, she recommends easing off of the milk products, uh, that that can be very helpful. Uh, Again, she's not even vegan, but that is something that she recommended for folks during that time period. Uh, I think that was Mr. Steele. Did you have commentary, sir? Howdy duty, everybody. It's, uh, it's uh, Ken Steele and I'm, calling in from Los Angeles. And I wanted to say um, really interesting suggestions uh, so far uh, this evening. Um, one suggestion I would have for controlling acid reflux, um, if you're not uh, wanting to take any pharmaceuticals um, or anything of the sort, um, you can always uh, take some diluted apple cider vinegar. Um, What that basically does is it will help balance your pH and it'll help um, your body not produce as much acid because what's happening uh, oftentimes is your body doesn't think that it has enough acid to digest the food uh, that you've consumed or the food that it anticipates that it's uh, going to have to manage. So you'll produce excess, uh, you'll produce excess acid, um, and one way to stop your body from producing it is to introduce uh, some slightly um, 
acidic uh, vinegar in there, or I think it's basic, sorry, counteractive, I don't know. Anyway, either way, um, when you do consume it, uh, it does work. Um, sometimes I have like a little bouts of acid reflux when I eat something that's a bit too spicy uh, and a little bit of diluted apple cider vinegar usually uh, helps it subside in less than five minutes. So uh, that's one natural remedy that, uh, that I found that's really useful. And um, I'll go ahead and mute my line. Thank you so much. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Steele. Uh, let's see. I'm making sure I get other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up that we have missed totally. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in that we missed completely. Did you have commentary to share? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of advice for the young lady. Um, I don't have those medical issues per se, so I really can't speak to those. I don't know. Um, but I did find a website. I don't know uh, for part of this because you know I'm very slow to things. It's called blackdoctors.org. I've never heard this in my life. Um, it seems to be black people who are talking about things, doctors and medical professionals are talking about things that affect, affect all people, but it's definitely black people. They even have, a, uh, I guess, the link to find what they call cultural, culturally sensitive doctors. Um, maybe you can have one of them on the show to talk about how the website works and how they, how they have determined that these people are culturally sensitive. Again, a lot of times with the medical profession, no matter what race they are, a lot of the training has been to what we would call Western medicine. So, you know, we still have some questions, but, you know, I've never heard it before. Blackdoc.org, it looks very professional. They have doctors, medical professionals, and I guess the founder, I guess, I can let me look at it real quick. The founder is seems to be somebody named Dr. Reginald Ware. I don't know how long he's been around. Again, I find out in seventy late. Seem like things going off twenty, thirty years, I just found out about it yesterday. I don't know. Um one thing, I guess medically I've seen that um people do they do go to saunas and I know saunas can be expensive. I guess they have home, homemade, not homemade, but portable saunas and things like that you can do at home. They say there are a lot of benefits to that feeding and sauna. And they sell a lot of those on Amazon. Some are expensive. The cheapest I've seen are about $100. So that's something you can use pretty regularly there. A lot of benefits, especially if you can't exercise at first. You can get a lot of sweat out that way. And then get enough strength and lose enough weight to start doing actual exercise because you need to do the exercise as well. Thank you. 
Much obliged. Thank you kindly for the uh, details. Uh, let's see. Did we miss any other folks? Okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So I'll send you the link to blackbox.org to look at it. Yes, ma'am. I'll repost and share yeah. as well so other listeners can check it out. Uh, did we miss any folks? Uh, anyone have a hand up that we missed totally? That be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. Good evening, listeners. Briefly, um, I want to go back to Alabama. Um, have you ever did a program on the croakers of uh, G's Bend, Alabama? Or made mention of it? Do you recall that? I don't think so, sir. I was I was trying to prepare like a report because I had recently um, traveled to uh, Baltimore and um, they had an exhibit of the um, women that were cooking in that area and I was um, curious if you might have uh, covered it but I'll I'll, um, I'll continue continue my research I'll meet my line thank you for sure sorry we couldn't be direct help there uh, we have about ten minutes left in the program. So if anybody has a final comment question, they want to make sure they get in. Last few moments uh, to speak up. Uh, I guess one additional thing I will add, uh, not that it was the most uh, important thing by far, but uh, the theme of violence, uh, it's so common. Uh, it's Violence directed against black people uh, is such a ubiquitous element in the system of white supremacy that I think it's it's taken for granted. Uh, That's why uh, Jihad Vasquez, uh, this black teen in Indiana, can be uh, can be found dead under suspicious circumstances. And it gets hardly mentioned. Uh, Drake, who I do think a lot of people know, Thomas in New York is in his fan club. all this week, people were complaining. Ball game. He was at a ball game, and they think he was celebrating too much. Too many sideline antics. Tired of seeing this nigra jumping up, and although he does have a white parent, we're tired of seeing him jump up, jump up and down on the sidelines. It was said repeatedly, over and over again, in a variety of different outlets where it was encouraged. People saying, "We should, we should smack him upside the head. I would take the ball and hit him." Uh, or I would uh, make a mistake and run over on the sideline and bam, knock him out. Just consistently people suggesting that violence uh, should be uh, launched against Drake, non-white male. Uh, and, I just, and people applauding this, laughing at this. Yes, attack him. Yes, beat him. Hit him with the ball. Something. Knock him over on the sideline. It's wait a minute. And the real wait a minute was not just as, again, this casual violence against black people, non-white people is acceptable. Regardless of what you think about Drake, uh, unless I've been misinformed, he is an actual partner. They were, this is basketball. He is an actual partner uh, with the Toronto basketball, uh, Toronto Raptors basketball franchise. Uh, his company name is on their practice facility. Apparently, they cut him a check. I'm actually, I'll retract so it's not a metaphor. They write a check to him to help promote their business, the Raptors 
franchise. So his antics and cheering and whatever he's doing that is helping promote and make money for their franchise, which I think does have uh, a black person who is GM or partial owner somewhat uh, for the Raptors franchise. But that just added further to it, the white supremacy of it is always acceptable to encourage violence against black people, non-white people, even in this case, a non-white person with a white parent. Uh, and this technically could be workplace racism. He's doing his job over on the sideline, cheering or what have you. He gets paid to do that, apparently, and people still find fault. Uh, were there any other folks who had question, uh, suggestion, or comment they wanted to get Can in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, yes sir. I think you're uh, talking to me. No? Douglas? Cor- or... Correct. I'm on DC. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. So I was going to say about the acid reflex and the menstrual uh, cycle. I'm not a woman, but I'm somewhat familiar. Uh, so but the, I think both of them could be uh, gas. Maybe not, but um, pain in the body, I've eliminated the causes to a couple causes, and I could be correct, but usually it's pressure, as in uh, a gas bubble, or something severed, or something's burnt or frozen, you know, so those are, that's what I've um, narrowed it down to, so with the uh, menstrual cramps and the acid reflex, uh, it could be the you need to, again, the exercise. I've heard people say that's good. So it's, if you look at other things that have like carbonated, some type of carbonation in it and, and bubbles are created, if you tap the, the container, the bubbles rise to the surface. So the jumping jacks that was suggested, I think that, that would work. Jogging would work. Another thing um, is taking, let's say, taking your left hand and reaching over to your right side, uh, below your rib cage, above your pelvis, but like uh, behind where where your kidney would be, and and pull it, pull it over uh, back to, over to your left side, or with your right hand, reach over to your left side, and below the um, rib cage, above the pelvis, and uh, around the kidney area, on your back, pull, uh, pull it like, you know, it's a massage, but you're, you're basically moving the, the gas bubble. Um, the, I could be incorrect. The um, acid reflex, maybe you're eating processed food and meat, one of the two or both, probably. And uh, uh, the, a whole lot of water, Again, that allows the the bubbles that form or the the gas that forms. Uh, it 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 doesn't give it a whole lot of space to to be, you know. And then you're able to move it better when you exercise. So those are my suggestions. Much obliged, M. Han DC. Uh, again, thanks to uh, Thomas in New York for the assist. Any other folks? Uh, last comment, thirty seconds. Happy Hurt? Uh, let's see. Ivy? We'll get the females first, and then we'll get oh, Thomas I, I in New York. Okay. Thank you, Gus. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you to everybody for 
um, your advice. And as far as the menstrual headaches, the menstrual cramps, and the acid reflux, I only get these um, things like when it's around the time for my menstrual cycle. I don't have any of these problems any other time. I do not eat dairy. I do not eat meat. Um, I only, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm vegan and whatever was maybe the other thing. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't do any of that, but, um, thank you everybody so much. And, and thanks Thomas from New York for letting me go first. And you too, Gus, I mute my line. Much obliged, Ivy. Thomas in New York. Yes, Gus. Um, I wanted to call him last night. I had a quick, um, workplace. I thought it was, um, interested on um, my boss who's generally at a lo another location. She came by the site I worked at yesterday, and um, she bought us all lunch. And um, one of the conversations she had was about ice cream. She mentioned a place called Big Gay Ice Cream, and she gave the whole story behind this gay guy, set it up, and blah, blah, blah. And then she said her favorite one, her favorite flavor was the Salty Pimp. So then she, I said, the salty pimp. I said, that's the name of the ice cream? She said, yeah. So then she, um, this is a white woman. She went on the website and then she um, looked it up and then she read it. So I'm going to read it to you and then um, I'm going to mute myself. Um, salty pimp, your lips meet chocolate. You crunch through the dark salty shell and discover the luscious vanilla soft serve that has been caressed and injected with dulce de leche. So the salty pimp has you now. And you wouldn't even turn back if you could. Relax, it's meant to be. And I just the way she read it, <laughs> in a, like it, like it was the commercial or something. It was like, hmm. So I said I gotta call in because I thought the lecture Negro. I mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Indeed, the salty pimp. Mm. Words are extremely important. Why would that even be the name uh, of ice cream? a dessert. That's what we should be striving for. That's what we want to uh, promote at Big Gay Ice Cream. Yes. We'll call that a broadcast. Uh, another mention for Delectable Negro uh, and The Man Not, both of them. Top 10. Reading is more important than watching television. With that, uh, much obliged for folks tuning in. Uh, Dr. Ruby Lathan should be back with us. Uh, that is a great reminder. She would be a great person to ask, I suspect, about uh, suggestions uh, for acid reflux, uh, as well as the menstrual cycle, maybe foods to avoid or maybe even some foods to eat, uh, increase in volume during that time period. Uh, she should be back. Uh, I will double check. I said I was just waiting uh, to pick a date and time to see when she'll be joining us. So I'll update and let people know. And uh, that's when maybe we can all prepare and have our questions in advance. Uh, people that can participate live so you can call in or you can email your questions. But she always has great info and uh, she inspired a lot of people her first time around as well to make some changes with their diet. So be good to hear from her again. Uh, if you have questions, suggestions, gripes, can't find something in the archives until justice at gmail.com. Much obliged for everyone's participation. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. I will say again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I think you heard that a few times through the course of the evening. Uh, it is a so-called holiday weekend, which generally means that there is an increase in binge drinking and all of those non-constructive behaviors. People don't have to go to work uh, on Monday, so that means it can be even more time to be intoxicated. 
we have a lot of problems. Let's try to be as constructive as possible with our time and energy. And we are already in danger in a system of white supremacy. Frequently, the spirits, as they say, when people are intoxicated and not thinking correctly, much more dangerous environment, especially if we got whites and alcohol. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we're in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. In addition, let's get off the cell phone if we are in a vehicle. Uh, that is just one more excuse for race soldiers to cause us problems. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.